Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and you, Jeff Lemon, and soon with Mark Butcher, who is joining us, uh, the illustrious commentator uh, from Sky Cricket, Talk Sport, uh, and all around the world where he's been uh, calling Test Cricket this winter in Sri Lanka and India and doing T20s in Pakistan and, and all the rest of it. So can't wait to bring that interview to you, Jeff. We've already got it in the can, it must be said, and uh, uh, he joined us for about... Oh, I guess it was an hour and a quarter or thereabouts going through his full life in cricket, uh, as we love doing uh, on these final word chats. And he was just a wonderful guest. He's someone we've been wanting to talk to for a while. I think he's one of those players who's in my memory because of that Headingley day, you know, when you're younger and there are those innings that you watch for those, those moments that stand out. And there was there's something about the quality of the sunshine on that day and it was the same sunshine on the Ben Stokes day in, in yeah. 2019. So it was there was a in my own life a sort of harmony between those two days but he's a, a much more interesting character than than just the cricket side of things and we found that out when we had the chat yeah about 12 months ago during the first lockdown maybe it was 11 months ago we spoke to nasa hussein who obviously uh, plays in a similar era to mark butcher indeed they, they overlap entirely when you consider butcher's career starts in 97 for england and ends in 2004 he was playing under nasa for the majority of that but there's more commonality than that i love the the way they interpret broadcasting as a career in and of itself they're not just former players who sort of pick up a bit of extra cash you know talking about cricket on the telly i mean these are these are serious broadcasters and that's why they're held in such high esteem. Well, I think it's also that it it's something that takes that long to get really good at. You know, they're not yeah. characters who walked into it and were brilliant straight away, but they had the same sort of work ethic and applied it to that career as, as much as they had the first one, which cannot be said for everybody. Hopefully that whets the appetite. There's plenty to uh, that conversation. It'll be with you as soon as we can get through the other bits and pieces on our agenda. The first thing I should say, as I wave to the camera in my living room here in London, is that we are recording uh, this entire episode for YouTube, the great unexpected success story of the final word in 2021 so far. I can't believe I'm saying this, but uh, nearly uh, 800,000 people have stopped by the final words YouTube channel uh, since we started adding videos to it. I think it was during the Melbourne test match between Mm -hmm. India and Australia, uh, just before or just after Christmas, rather. We did not see that coming. So we thought that um, why not expand upon our daily offerings and some other bits and pieces we've chucked up there with a chance to watch us do our thing week to week. So uh, it's it's not us looking directly into the camera. In my case, it's uh, I suppose I'm I'm sitting on the sofa in a pair of slippers with my (laughs) laptop stacked on three old copies of Wisdom, 1989, uh, 1990 and 1991, which actually, as it happens, would have been the year that Mark Butcher was signed at Surrey, 1989, just for some nice symmetry there. And Jeff, in your case, you've got the the log cabin um, set up that we're familiar Mm. with, having watched you on the daily shows there in the past. Yeah, just about to pop into the sauna straight after we finish recording this one. Um, Hello, if if you're watching the video. Look, I'm not going to say it's very dynamic, like you're watching 
two people having a conversation. But if you're listening to the podcast, you're also just listening to two people having a conversation. So we look like <laughs> what you might imagine two people talking might look like. If you want to watch that, that's fine. Or if you, I don't know, listen to your podcast on YouTube Premium or whatever, then, you know, go for it. Fill your boots. I, I don't know who wants YouTube but apparently people do. So it's fine. It's out there. It's it's for you if that's if you're about the tubes, we're in the tubes. The internet is a series of tubes. <laughs> and you can see Butch as well. It should be noted that we 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 videoed, well, I should zoom a video to Butch when we spoke to him. I wasn't surreptitious. We weren't in a in the sort of a it wasn't a hidden camera type setup. He no. knew we were filming <laughs> at the time. So uh, you can uh, not only hear, but just watch up in the Butch in the top right corner of the back of the taxi <laughs> um, when, when we were talking to Mark Butcher, we had the camera set up. <laughs> yes, he was going to knock a bit off the fare when he was driving us to Cockfosters or something like that. Yeah. So um, if if you uh, haven't uh, subscribed to the YouTube page, you won't necessarily know that we're going to keep making um, those videos during the England. India T20 series, Jeff. That's a decision we made a couple of days ago. We won't be doing them straight after the games, but once I've woken up the following day, because of course they'll end quite late Melbourne time, middle of the night Melbourne time, uh, we'll be able to uh, review those games. So they won't go on the podcast feed, but they will be there on YouTube from my backyard, and, and I guess again, Jeff, from your log cabin. Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be down in the cabin with the fever, um, and we'll find a way to make it work. The time zones are, are appalling for everybody at some point, but you know we'll. Yes. Just keep an eye on the channel. We'll, there will be more stuff going up there as we go. All right, Jeff, let's crack on with our agenda uh, before we come to our feature interview. A quick note about the Australian men, which I totally missed, I must admit, mm. when New Zealand formally qualified for the World Test Championship final. So to recap, New Zealand were a lock the moment that Australia elected not to go to South Africa. It meant they couldn't be overtaken uh, by both of England and India. Of course, India end up making it, uh, as we know. But Australia would have made it on countback. They would have been level on points with New Zealand, just as New Zealand were level on runs with England uh, in the 2019 Men's World Cup final. But because they were docked four points for slow overrates at the MCG test match that we were talking about before, mm. that was enough to get them beneath New Zealand and, and sort of the rest is history. <laughs> so, again, this was noticed at the time. It's not as though the ICC informed us this week. David Boom was the match referee uh, and, and so went the formal process. They were two overs late. And if you're two overs late, according to the World Test Championship provisions, you get docked two points, accounting for all the different allowances that they have and there are many of mm. those. But, um, yeah, who would have thought that after all this time complaining about overrates, it would actually come to something meaningful. We didn't expect it. And, well, something really substantial. You know, this isn't yeah. a sort of slap on the wrist kind of thing. Yeah, so it's two two points per over and then two overs, so four points out of how many? 500 and whatever it was? I mean, what are the sort of yeah, tallies I think Australia, of Yeah, I think... I haven't got it in front of me, but in the multiple hundreds, Australia yeah. might have ended up with sort of 360-odd of the 440-odd at their disposal, which uh, I'm sure I've got that wrong. But the point here is that four yeah. points doesn't sound like an awfully big figure, yeah. but it dropped Australia to 69.5% possibly, mm. and New Zealand were at an even 70. So, yeah, had it been well, uh, a tiebreaker, the fact that Australia beat New Zealand in the in the WTC cycle at home last Australian summer would have been enough to have seen them I, through. But instead, it'll be the Black Caps at the Aegeus Bowl, and we'll it, talk more about that in a minute. It, it wasn't quite head-to-head. -head. I think it was done on a runs per wicket average. So Australia, oh, Australia okay. had a better numerical Watsy. You know, we probably should have looked this up before we did the show, but <laughs> you, you, you get the vibe that I'm going for. And I don't want to sound unkind about it, but it is kind of funny in a way that, that, that such a small thing, because, 
as you say, we've been banging on about overrates for so long and nothing has happened and every team takes the extra half hour as given and still doesn't finish their overs, even in the extra half hour, and you lose so much time out of test matches and they've been hit for it. And as every AFL side knows, you don't want to drop the four points. You do not. You do not. Well put. Uh, well, Pat Cummins at the time was asked about it and said he didn't know why they were losing the points necessarily or because he was talking about the, the 12th men running out, drinks and uh, yep. the, the fluorescent singlets and, and so on. And that's definitely part of the problem, no question. But since Jason Holder missed a test match two years ago uh, and they got rid of that, so the captain no longer misses out uh, in the event of uh, repeat offences. But uh, I suppose I thought anyway, the way I interpreted mm. losing a couple of points here and there from the WTC, that was a tacit sort of green light to continue carrying yeah. on as players have in recent years but Which it mostly yeah, it's, it's is. an unexpected consequence here. If, if you're if you're out of contention you know if you're not going to qualify and, and you know that a year into the two-year cycle then yeah bowl as slow as you want it doesn't matter um, <laughs> but it is interesting that up the top of the table with such fine margins, the barest of, if I dare say, it had an effect. So that final, uh, it's been confirmed by Sirav Ganguly, not the only piece of news the BCCI um, have confirmed uh, on behalf of other organisations this week, it must be said. Uh, Sirav Ganguly, who's the boss of the BCCI, told a, a reporter yesterday that the final will be at the Rose Bowl between the 18th and the 22nd of June. We knew the second bit, but um, the Rose Bowl, it was reported they were going to use that instead of Lords because of the biosecurity environment, but mm-hmm. that's all been inked in. So they won't be going to Lords as planned but they will be going to a ground that did a fantastic job hosting a number of international fixtures last year at the, at, during the worst of coronavirus. And I, and I suppose it makes sense given it's unclear what the provisions will be for crowds. I mean, I know certainly in June that there should be crowds, but, I mean, are they willing to take that risk in the current climate? I, mm. I, I can get why they want to take every precaution with players at a hotel. Yeah, it would be just after that. Is it June 17, the, the date when, when things might ease a bit on the... The UK government roadmap. Something um, like that, yeah. There, yeah. there and thereabouts. So, yeah, they, it's probably a match where, I mean, India should be in it. The, the team that comes to Australia, loses the first game, comes back to win and then loses the first test at, at home and, and comes back to beat England, deserves to be in the final. You would think New Zealand maybe maybe slightly less so than Australia, but Australia had so many chances and, and blew it. But... New Zealand did beat Australia in the T20 series, got that one 3-2 after losing the the third and fourth matches, came back and won the fifth one. Martin Guptill got runs and um, most importantly, the chair that Glenn Maxwell broke at the cake tin at Wellington is up to $2,000 on Trade Me on on the New Zealand's eBay. Uh, If you want to get in there for a bid, it's still up till Thursday. Yeah, it's raising money for a good cause as well. It's for, for a women's, a women's shelter, shelter in Wellington, resident. yeah. Yeah. I mean, originally I sent an email to New Zealand Cricket and asked whether we could have it for the final word, but I think this is a far better <laughs> outcome that the money is going to be uh, raised than going to a, a, a I did have a couple of bids. So. So I, I got in there a bit earlier and did some bidding, but once it started <laughs> to get into four figures, I thought I'm not sure that I can justify that. For yeah, after my experience with the Batmobile last year, it can, it can be a very slippery slope. Yeah, so exactly. uh, in a way, I'm glad you missed out and glad you pulled the pin uh, prematurely. I quite liked how they exchanged shirts, uh, Jimmy mm. Neesham and Glenn Maxwell, given that it was Neesham who Maxwell did the damage off with the 28 run over, making his, was it 70 off 31 balls yep. when he was about 10 from 10 and he looked like he was going to battle, but then he just exploded and it was a joy to wake up to at uh, the middle of last week. Yeah, it was an over with uh, three fours and three sixes in it, I think. So Neesham signed the shirt and then added in the the scoring shots below it, which is, so a, a couple of final word favourites there having a decent Absolutely. time. 
the other results, well, there have been so many games and series going on. So New Zealand women um, went down 3-0 to England at home in their T20s. They lost two of the ODIs as well. So one game out of six for New Zealand women at home after winning one game out of six against Australia when they toured last September. And, you know, an ongoing concern, like just how bad they're getting. They, they look like their senior players look so jaded their junior players are kind of non-existent at the moment and things like putting Hayley Jensen up to open the batting who's a you know a lower order slogger at best no offense but it's they just don't have the cattle at the moment yeah I agree they're they're so far off the pace with Australia England and India it must be said who are now getting a chance to play for the first time in well a year exactly since International Women's Day Mm. um, last year when they played that T20 final but it goes back I think 19 months since their last one day in international and they've played a couple of those this week against uh, South Africa and they're going to play three more then four T20s three T20s it must Mm -hmm. be said sorry three uh, T20s next week but the point here is that India are playing again um, in a competitive series against South Africa they've split the difference in in the first two of those so when you think about where New Zealand might fit in in their home World Cup which is being hosted well the final will be 12 months from now as well Mm. so they're a long way off the pace when it comes to being able to genuinely challenge for that title which seems such a crying shame given that two years ago when we were building up to that T20 competition in Australia we were kind of thinking that if it's not going to be Australia then it may very well be New Zealand but that's inconceivable at the moment. Yeah well they you know they've got those three great senior players but in, in Sophie Devine and Susie Bates and Amy Satterthwaite, but they've been carrying that team for so long that they seem worn out. The whip around the shield, uh, Victoria should have won but got rained off against Tasmania on the last day. WA and Queensland had a draw on an absolute road at the Gabba. What was it, six for 900 or something at one point, or nine for <laughs> nine for 900? Um, Cameron Green. I think six for 900 was the, the score at the Gabba during that shield final yeah. uh, back in mm, 2007-8, I think it was. But yeah, there was. I think it was nine. Nine for 600, the other side of the inverse of that. But yeah, Cameron Green in the first innings of that match making a, a, a 250-251 to be precise. I mean, made 100 in short-form cricket last week, a double-ton in grade cricket the week before that, and now 251 at the pointy end of the Shield season. Sure, he, he didn't make runs for Australia. He made a couple of half-centuries, but it didn't go on to make a, a massive contribution uh, in the baggy green against India. But you can just see, can't you? You can just feel it. A bloke who averages 60 in first-class cricket at mm. the age of 22 with the amount of tons he's now notched he's not going anywhere yeah absolutely that and Matthew Renshaw the forgotten man of Australian cricket yeah, Matthew Renshaw yeah. 139 in the middle order um, the poor old South Australians missed out on another win as well three declarations in the match they set a target Alex Carey made 100 Chad Sayers the Chad was great made 52 not out down the order Curtis Patterson the forgotten man of Australian cricket Curtis Patterson made 102 for New South Wales the first time around and then after the three declarations they're set 295 to win David Warner picked off 69. Nice. Um, Sean Abbott made 83 and got out right at the end. Moses Enriquez 78 not out and they ran it down with a leg in the air. So South Australia can't take a trick. Yeah, so South Australia got reverse outrighted there in, in club cricket speak. Abbott was named player of the match despite not taking a wicket, which is a fraction unusual. 71, I think it was in the first innings, and 83 in the chase. Yeah, Alex Carey, so an 80 last week in his first year game back after the white ball spurt, and then and then a 125 here. I think that's mm. his third first-class 100, second this season, something like yeah, that. But that sounds the right. The fact that he was going to be on that tour of South Africa, and I reckon he would have played. That's At five a, as a That's batsman. a pretty good sign. Yeah, that's my sense that Mm. they were going to find a way to give him that test taboo and where he fits in post-Tim Payne, that's unclear, but he's certainly uh, doing his chances no harm by making all these runs. Mm.
Yeah, um, I, I think exactly that. Although a little word for Jimmy Pearson, who never gets talked about up at Queensland. You know, made very consistent runs for what, five seasons or so now, um, another 50 sure. in, in that game. It just doesn't get talked about as an option, but, you know, um, some, some players get talked about and some don't. I should note that not all was lost out of that game for South Australia because uh, for scoring his third first-class half-century, 52 not out, no less, Chad Sayers... The big double D is the Seabus Super Performer of the Week. Uh, so a round of applause for Chad. Not hey. always lost. Seabus uh, <laughs> Super Performer of the Week. Are you looking to increase your average in retirement? 52 not out will help that. Check out Seabus today. Seabussuper.com.au slash the final word. No better time to get your super sorted out. The final word landing page is one we are quite enjoying there with our caricatures and a bit of information about what we've done. But most importantly, a lot of information about your superannuation. Get it sorted out. Cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word. A lot of announcements on International Women's Day from various organisations who were timing their run for exactly that. The Women's World Cups, both of them will be expanded as of sort of the second half of the the 2020s decade, so the the 50-over tournament will go up to 10 teams from 8. The T20 tournament will go up to 12 teams from 10, so more opportunities there for the Thailands of the world to, to get in and be part of those tournaments. And then there's this new tournament as well, the, the Six-Team Champions Cup, which is basically just the ICC saying, can we have all the teams that might make some money for us come together and give us another <laughs> tournament? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a fantastic announcement and one that we've been pushing for. The 50-over World Cup being an eight-team event is uh, not in keeping with the way that women's cricket has grown in the last five years around the world. And the T20 being 12 teams, well that, that's in keeping with the expansion of the men's comp. Of course we'd love to see more, we'd love to see the men's 50 over World Cup increase beyond its current 10 teams too but that doesn't seem likely and I love the idea of this Champions Cup which is you know, it just means they're going to get the chance to have a women's global tournament every year which I don't mind. Hypercost made the observation on Twitter that there were so many women's global comps I think every mm. year there was a trophy played for between 2009 and 2020, something like that right. and his analysis is that that must have played a role in elevating international women's cricket. So that six-team tournament, yeah, it might be a bit light on. They might want to have a second six or something like that also playing at the same time or, or, <laughs> or a promotion relegation, I think, is part of it. But nevertheless, the, the idea of more women's international tournament cricket is certainly a good thing. And, uh, yeah, as you say, it was part of a broader suite of announcements on International Women's Day. I think it will work in the context of the women's game because that calendar's not so overloaded. You know, they're, they're trying to shoehorn some tournament like that into the men's game, but there's just not really room for it. And that's why there's been resistance from, um, particularly from the BCCI. But in the women's game, there's not so much, you know, bilateral touring and that kind of thing, which means yeah. that yeah, this, this will be enough incentive for boards to get their teams to, to the tournament to play in that six. But the other announcement that came through was a test match to be played between India and England. Now, just a week ago on this show, we were furiously talking about how many test matches Mitali Raj has played in a 22-year career, 10 of them, and how it was a disgrace. That's what everything you don't like in sport is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. And now, lo and behold, they must have a direct line to our show, straight to Surav, and they've whipped up a test match in what will presumably be a multi-format series like the women's ashes with, you know, points for the one-dayers and the T20s. Yeah. India and England... 
teams other than England and Australia are going to play a test match between women's international cricketers. Who would have thought? It, it's possible and it happened. So much good news for women's cricket after a dreadful 12 months uh, all arriving on that day. A second announcement where the BCCI have put it out ahead of the, the host, I suppose. The ECB haven't said anything about this as yet. This was the, mm. uh, the honorary secretary of the BCCI putting up oh, yeah. a tweet, you know, cracking massive numbers on Twitter for it. Well played him, I suppose. But yeah, multi-format <laughs> Got to get the clout. <laughs> Why not? Well, the, I mean, the multi-format the series content. makes so much sense. <laughs> if Indeed. If you're going to try and integrate women's test cricket... Mm into the offering more generally. It makes sense for it to have context and the best way to give it context is a multi-format series and that's worked so well uh, between Australia and England since 2013. I'm just thrilled to see that that's going to be expanded. So in the case of Badali Raj and Jalan Goswami, um, they're 38 years of age now, the two of them. They haven't played an international since they were 36 and they'll get a chance to play another test match having both debuted, I mean, in Madali's case, 20 years ago. So yeah. uh, it's a nice story there and uh, looking forward to um, hopefully being in attendance at that test match once we get a bit more information about it from the ECB. Well, even that they're playing this week in this current series because they've both given up T20 cricket, but they're still playing yeah. ODIs. India hadn't played an ODI since November 2019. And so yeah, they got yeah. back on the park this year after, what, 16 months or whatever that is out of cricket. Matali made a 50, Julian picked up four for, and away they go just continuing to, to be as good as they were. An announcement that came out of Australia on International Women's Day as well was that they're going to get a statue, a cast in bronze at one of the grounds of at least one former women's cricketer. They've currently got, well, you're the statue god, is it 70-something statues of, of blokes at the various cricket yeah. grounds and, and not one of them. I think they said there's 70, yeah, 73. Uh, yeah, if, if there's one topic I think I probably can declare expertise on it, it's <laughs> cricket sculptures around Australia venues, given I spent six months researching this a number of years ago. But no, it, it makes perfect sense. I think the idea is that at the SCG where they made the announcement uh, yesterday, mm -hmm. they are going to have sort of a competitive process and work out who the player will be and so on. But yeah, I think the SCG sculptures are just so br brilliantly done. They're intentionally at ground level rather than being on a plinth as they are at the MCG so that you can kind of interact with them. Mm. I mean, we all know the Stan McCabe hook shot, which Steve Waugh and Rodney Cavalier together worked out what the shape of that hook shot would be. Mm -hmm. So they got um, Steve Waugh to put on, well, I think he, they went to the Bowral Bradman Museum mm -hmm. and got out all the old clobber from Bradman okay. and Cavalier ended up being the model for it after Steve Waugh gave artistic creation to make sure to be authentic but of course War's <laughs> got one there too um, Richie Benno passing the ball from hand to hand which I think is my favourite of, of the lot so and a couple of others as well but it'll be mm. a great addition when they when they finish that and, and yeah something that's a, a glaring omission and hopefully there'll be an opportunity to do this at the Casino Stadium at Perth where the state government have announced some funding mm -hmm. for this I think in the lead up to the last state election and at the Gabba when they do this hopefully when they mm. when they do this redevelopment uh, of the Gabba around what may very well be an Olympic games building up to 2032 they'll, they'll find the space to to recognize some players men and women uh, at that grand old ground as well well you know if there's a statue at the casino stadium at perth it'll be of gina reinhardt um obviously <laughs> she's, she's got that monument that's the big rock with her remarkable poem about special economic zones in the north of australia just to um i, I wrote a uh, i wrote a breakdown of the you know the po 
poetic structure of that um, for for some news outlets a few years ago. So, yeah, just just one of the literary giants <laughs> of our age, Gina, and t- whatever it's, she turns uh, her hand to, it turns to maybe not gold, but iron ore at least. Yeah, it's it's not for this podcast, but one day I might uh, I might um, speak to you at greater depth about the, the the announcement of the special economic zone in in the Northern Territory and, and Northern Australia during the 2013 election campaign. Uh, <laughs> one of those yarns. Anyway, (laughs) the wash up from the England and India test matches, everybody over there, Adam is in London, if you don't know, I'm, I'm in Melbourne. They are bloody furious about this rotation business, aren't they? They're just spitting ships. Had it worked, it would have been fine. Um, You know, the fact that England got beaten badly, the fact that England picked their teams very badly, all the rest of it, you know, which didn't necessarily have that much to do with rotation, but yeah, they're spitting chips. There's a lot here. It's one of those ones where it's hard to kind of capture all the perspectives without pissing somebody off. But look, put it this way, Chris Silverwood, the coach, has said it's staying. They're not scrapping it. This is staying and it may very well be a factor inside an Ashes series. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that the way we conceptualised it was that we would get to November... Everyone would arrive for an Ashes series mm-hmm. and then they play their best 11 for five tests. And look, maybe they will. But I think they're giving themselves this flexibility given just how much is on. So this summer it'll be a part of the conversation, as it will be, of course, uh, uh, when they play two test matches at home against New Zealand in May because the Indian Premier League, the schedule we uh, received just this week, I should say June are when the tests are being played, but the IPL doesn't finish until the 30th of May, yep. which means that it's entirely possible that English first-choice players will be in the latter stages of the IPL. We foreshadowed this on the show two or three weeks ago, but that's been confirmed by Chris Silverwood. They'll play the IPL. So it is kicking off. I mean, the usual types have been in in the newspapers over the last Mm -hmm. couple of days, citing this is the reason why England are stuffed. And sure, no doubt that it contributed to their defeat, the scale maybe of their defeat, not having every single player at their disposal. But the idea that sort of Joe Root's not getting his way and Owen Morgan is getting his way kind of discounts the fact that Owen Morgan had to play with uh, composite sides last year due to mm. the bio-bubble um, situation against Ireland, especially. I mean, they lost that third one, the international, to Ireland, and that certainly wasn't the best England white ball team. Mm. And then I suppose there's these sort of subsets of the, the argument. You look at Sam Curran, who wasn't able to get back to India in time to play a role in the Test Series, but now he will be available for the white ball cricket, will be available for the IPL. Johnny Bairstow went home after the Sri Lanka tests, returned on very little preparation, made three ducks in four innings. His test career, at least in the short term, might be over. And Jonathan Liu wrote sympathetically and eloquently, naturally, given that it's Louis, about Bairstow in the Guardian newspaper today. I can strongly recommend that piece. Just kind of mm. giving a sense of how tough it must have been for this guy, changing positions 14 times in 18 test matches since 2018 yep. when Butler returned and Bairstow went up the order for that home series and everything kind of changed for him. So... Yeah, and there's other HR matters at play as well. So Owen Morgan did an interview with The Times with Steve James. Great interview. But the main news point from that is that Alex Hales might be back into the fold Mm -hmm. this year as part of this broader rotation. So, yeah, I don't know, Jeff. I don't know how you see this. But the idea that it's simply prioritising white ball cricket against test cricket... I'm not sure it's quite that. It's more that they're balancing the two off against each other, whereas before it was always test cricket comes first. And that's never going to be easy when you've got so many three-format players with the coronavirus uh, provisions they need to have in place from country to country with travel and bubbles and and rest and rehabilitation. And it was never going to be easy. And now that they've lost a series heavily, it's in sharp focus. Yeah, and and two things here. It's 
completely absurd for former players to be criticising current players for putting money ahead of their country when that's coming from players who took blood money to go on rebel tours to South Africa instead of playing for their own country um, back in the 80s. So, you know, get back in your box. And the other part of it is that the IPL was happening long before those two test matches against New Zealand were scheduled. They were an afterthought. They were an extra squeezed into the schedule, partly as a as a helping hand to New Zealand who were coming to play the World Test Championship final to, to give them some prep and, and partly as a way for the ECB to make some extra cash or to make up some of the shortfall of what they couldn't provide in, in the previous season, however that works out. So those test yeah. matches were added in afterwards. A player not being available for those test matches isn't, the fault of the player who's already got a commitment to to go and play elsewhere, even though the IPL schedule wasn't known ahead of time. But apparently the the BCCI did make some concession in trying to make sure that it was over soon enough, or that well that has more to do with their own national team needing to play in the World Test Championship final. But you know, they have factored in the English summer to some extent in terms of when the IPL will finish. Yeah, it's far from a new debate. You're right in saying that. You go all the way back to the start with Kevin Peterson and Owen Morgan. I mean, Owen Morgan, of course, uh, was willing to prioritise IPL over where he was positioned in the test pecking order. I mean, it must be seven or eight or even nine years ago now. So it's just that it's getting a rebirth. So a couple of years ago when England won the World Cup, mm. uh, a lot of uh, a lot of energy was, was invested in describing the IPL as having been a, a major component part to that build. Yep. So they went from having, you know, those one or two players getting a chance mm-hmm. to eight or ten. And suddenly uh, they get, they're battle-hardened partly yep. uh, by what they're able to do in India in this high-profile, all-singing, all-dancing tournament once per year. Yeah, and, uh, and, and now that it's not as convenient with the test schedule, it's causing this kind of blow-up. And you know what? I mean, I wrote about this for the paper the other day. It all comes back to scheduling. I mean, if hmm. we want to have – and this has been the case for years. Again, nothing new about this argument. But if we want to have a, a serious discussion about three-format players, about how taxing it is both physically and emotionally for them, about how – we recalibrate the schedule post-coronavirus and post-bubbles, hopefully post-bubbles, then we need to throw everything on the table. We need to kind of say, well, look, here are the T20 franchise competitions around the world. Here are the commitments that countries have to each other inside the World Test Championship, inside the Future Tour program, inside the bilateral one-day World Cup that started last year, and be realistic about what's possible rather than always adopting the approach that more is more. Because when it comes to these players, it's palpably the case that more is not more. When you feed more in, at some point the machine breaks and we don't get to see the best players week in, week out, month in, month out because they just can't do it. They can't sustain it. And we've, we've learnt these stories more acutely mm. through, the, through this coronavirus year and I hope that we can you know, apply the lessons on the other side of it. And the thing about making everything an either-or proposition, one of the things that we've talked about extensively over the last few weeks watching India play in India and in Australia was the preparedness and strength of their bench players who had been blooded through the IPL. You likes of Washington exactly. Sundar and Mohamed Siraj and even before that Jasper Boomer and so on who came into international cricket ready to play, not intimidated by a big crowd at a foreign ground because they've done that. They've played in front of 50,000 people before at a hostile ground. They've done it for several seasons in a row in the IPL and it's actually useful to have that experience. It's potentially more useful for an England player to play in an IPL final than it is to play in the first test against New Zealand in terms of having a cricket experience that helps advance their their ability to deal with the big moment. 
Yeah, and this is another point I made in that piece the other day, that um, the IPL has uh, been the catalyst for scouring the country. Harsha Bogle talks about this all the time. Every corner of every village for talent, and the IPL franchises have done that. I think that should be a point of inspiration for English cricket, seeing what India have achieved. All that depth they have, uh, the way they've been able to beat Australia in Australia with a third-string team, essentially, and then do the same after losing Jadeja in Walksack Sharpatel. I mean, the same applied in Australia. Uh, and if that's not inspiration to administrators in England... And look, remember that leading into the 2019 World Cup, mm. their motivation was all about growing the game long-term. Finding the new audience was the cliche. Well, OK, that's great. We, we lost 2020, but straight back on that bike, find every possible kid they can and bring them into the game as early as we can. And then maybe that will mean there is greater depth in English cricket going forward. It follows that it should. We know based on um, what happens with smaller nations, that's the effect. Mm-hmm. And certainly in India in the last 10 years, put it this way, it's by choice, not chance, that they've got loads of fast bowlers now compared to what they had before. And they'll be the fast bowlers that are here trying to win the World Test Championship at the Rose Bowl against New Zealand. It won't be their spinners. That's right. Before we get to Mark Butcher, Adam... Would you like to play a little game? I would. Let's do a quick round of it, I say. A game that has a name, and the name is Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's the game we play with the people on our patron page. They support the show and help it keep going, and they do that by sending us amounts of a currency of their choice, but not a normal amount, not a round amount, a different number, a distinct number, a number that has something to do with cricket, but they know what that number means and we don't and we have to work out what it is three numbers at lightning speed the first comes from anthony osborne the number is six dollars forty and nerd pledges don't have to send a clue but they can if they want and anthony has and anthony's clue is i doubt you'll need it i doubt you'll need this clue but my nerd pledge relates to the greatest test match i've ever seen in the flesh Go forth, Adam. Yeah, well, I know that Anthony's a Tasmanian, uh, so that did narrow it down somewhat. So, uh, well, there was a fantastic test match played at Hobart in November 2011 where Doug Bracewell took uh, six for 40 to rout Australia. He didn't rout Australia at all, actually. He he, um, consistently chipped away at Australia in three discrete spells and ended Mm. up taking nine for 60 in, in that test match. But I went back through it. It was a hell of a match. I mean... Uh, Anthony's spot on in saying it's it's one of the one of the greats. So I forgot that favorites. the margin of victory. Yeah, well, the margin of victory was seven, seven runs, I think it yeah. was. And yeah, the first time New Zealand had beaten Australia in twenty years, that the victory target was two hundred and forty-one. After quite a bit happened in the first three days, with um, Australia out cheaply, New Zealand out cheaply, then uh, New Zealand out for two twenty-six in the third inning. So there's Warner, second test, basically. Uh, yes, that's right. Second test match, having not made a contribution yet at test level. And if I recall correctly, Jeff, when he was picked in that first test at Brisbane, it wasn't as though it was um, hailed as uh, sort of a, a positive thing. There was no. a lot of debate as no. to whether he'd have the game to last the test of time uh, against the red ball. But he's picked anyway on spec, I suppose you would say. Yeah. And then he, he yeah carries his bat for 123 here in this chase. Well, he was considered to be a slogger. He'd been in the T20 team. He had he'd played very little first class cricket. Was picked as a hunch, yeah. you know, made four and 12 not out at the Gabba. Should have had a wicket first ball, got dropped at deep mid-wicket. But, that, you know, hadn't done much in his first test and didn't do much in the first innings. And then suddenly he was up. Yeah, and it's a crazy finish as well. So uh, at one stage, uh, Bracewell's on a hat-trick um, after nicking off Michael Clark for a duck taken nicely by big Roscoe Taylor in the cordon. But you press fast forward an hour or so and Brad Haddon gets out and then Peter Siddle gets out shortly thereafter and Mitchell Stark gets out and suddenly Australia are 199 for nine and kind of out of the game. In walks Nathan Lyon. He's played about 
four test matches himself mm. at this point. Oh, and yeah. he rides shotgun with Warner past 100. Warner keeps putting the foot down. Then Nathan Lyon hits a boundary, puts them to inside 10 runs of victory, and the ball goes back to Bracewell. And Bracewell goes through the gate. He castles Lyon, and they go absolutely wild, uh, as mm. I say, because it's the first time they've beaten Australia in two decades. And looking back at it now, Jeff, it, it's... In some respects, a slightly sad story for Bracewell as far mm. as you think a 21-year-old who's capable of taking nine for 60 against Australia and winning a test match, so his match figures, mm. um, would go on to be prolific for a long time with that lovely shape he gets away from the right-hander and nip back off the seam. But he ends up taking 72 wickets in 27 test matches by the time he's 26 and doesn't play again. He's only 30 years old now. Mm. Uh, and look, we, we always remember him for having overstepped but not really overstepped at the Basin uh, against Australia in 2016, that, that Voges dismissal that should yep. have been. But he only plays a couple of more tests after that and he kind of goes into the domestic wilderness and and I suppose New Zealand would say they've, they've moved on beyond him now. He played a little bit of white ball cricket uh, in 2019 before the World Cup, but that was that. So his finest moment in the international game came as a 21-year-old, but it was a, an absolute an absolute pearler of a performance, six for 40, which must be the number for Anthony Osborne. It must. He's got to go to India, Doug Bracewell. That's that's my uh, that's my position on it. He's got to be in their squad. Uh, the next number is very similar to $6.40 because it's $6.20. It comes from Michael Fitzgerald. And uh, there was also a clue with that that said, my nerd pledge would have been $0.62 rather than $6.20, but A, I didn't want to be stingy, and B, patron wouldn't let me be that stingy. Uh, your other hint <laughs> is that I think it's going to be a while before the next one. Mm, so 0.62. I thought, could it be 62? Aaron Finch made 62 on debut. It's going to be a while before his next test half century. Um, pro- probably not going to come around again. Yep. Uh, around about the time this pledge came in a couple of months ago, Bruce Oxenford retired after 62 test matches. So you could say it'll be a while before his next one, but it won't because he won't do that again either. And then I thought, well, it's probably not 62. It's got to be 0.62. It has to mean it's a ratio rather than a... So I was looking at ratios yeah. of maybe sixes per test match to low, um, hundreds per test, but that would be a lot higher. And then I realised 60.62 would be 62%, wouldn't it? Who won 62% of the tests that he captained? Ricardo Ponting. Not the best ever because Steve Waugh was 70, nearly 72%, but Ricky Ponting did come second so far with 62% as his winning percentage. And I think it's right to say that it will probably be quite a long time before another test captain has a 62% winning tally. What would you say? Okay, I like it. The second mm. winningest percentage, as the Americans mm. might say. When they, Ian Healy when said they that, talk actually, about on, their on commentary at one point. Yeah, yeah, I, I'll, I'll the accept most, it. I'll the accept most it. winningest I, captain, he said. Yeah, well, as I say, that's kind of American jargon there. Mm. Remember when, speaking of... Um, uh, nomenclature when Ricky Ponting for about five minutes it was reported back to Australia and I think it was a 2003 World Cup that he was asking to then be called Rick Ponting because oh. that's when he became captain okay. I mean it turned out to be an incorrect story it was a mm. bung yarn but I <laughs> love the idea of you know for at least 24 hours everyone's thinking hang on Rick Ponting it Rick has a different <laughs> I think of him differently to saying it like that Rick Rick Ponting yeah in the mind's eye does not look like Ricky Ponting mm. what about Whiskers Ponting um, would he have gone? Would he have gone with the name change in order to cash the check from? I've often thought about that. I've, 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 I mean, as a Geelong supporter, yeah. I mean, how did you interpret that when 
Gary Hocking said, mm. I'm going to change my name to Whiskers for a week. Look, I at that time, I think, as a young... Not even a young man. I was, I was, I was a child. I, I don't think that I thought that Gary Hocking could do any wrong. I thought whatever Gary wants to do, that's fine. I mean, he was called Buddha week to week. There aren't a lot of white men from Geelong named Buddha, um, and so if he wanted to go from Buddha white to Garbo Whiskers from Geelong and back to back to Buddha, but that was fine. Gary Hocking could do what he liked. He'd I wonder how he handles the stats in the wet um, and snag one from the forward pocket. It was fine. We had to fill out our census form this week here in the UK, mm. and you know, there's that. Have you ever been known by a different name? Question. You'll get. I wonder whether yeah. Gary Hocking each five. Yeah years has to go actually yes for a brief window of time i was known as whiskers <laughs> for seven days I, I was known as whiskers it was there a card issued you know a sort of uh, future talent type footy card with with gary whiskers hocking on it i I'm hope sure there, there was been. uh third and final nerd pledge today jeff was from fran and it's an easy one for me it's it's 46.55 which it must be said is it Remarkably generous pledge. I don't expect that Fran mm. will be tipping in 46.55 every single month, but I'm so glad they are. Uh, Fra- Fran's been. been doing it for a while. Yeah. And, and, oh, right. and look, I mean, we don't expect. All the better. Like, if you want to throw in two bucks, that's fine. If you want to throw in 46 bucks, that's also fine. But it's not expected. It's not, it's not necessary. But no. we're very grateful. Well, we, we love you for it. We love you for it because it does make a massive difference. Um, there's no clue, but it has to be the batting average of a man who made 3,631 test runs, 11 centuries, and made uh, made it above 50 a further 14 times in 89 test innings. Dean Mervyn Jones, the late Dino, his batting average at test level was 46.55. Jeff, I thought just to add a bit bit of extra mm. to this, given that, you know, it, it, that's that's pretty easy, isn't it? Dino's batting average next. Well, no, let's go but, through But I like really the commitment quickly. from Fran that if I'm going to do a batting average, you know, I'm not going to go 4.65. I'm going to do the full, <laughs> the full two digits because a batting average needs two digits yep. after it. Not one, two. Two digits. That's how we do batting average. Full commitment to the bit. Well, Dino's average was into the 50s after the Madras innings, which, of course, mm. was his third or fourth test match, so that makes sense. But it went down to 41 just before the the 216 he made against the Windies to finish the summer of 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Then it was back in the 50s again by the end of the 1989 Ashes and up to wow. 53, a high watermark, um, the following summer when they played Pakistan and he made his twin tons. Then it kind of hovered around the 40s between then and the end of his test career, what became the end of his test career in September 1992. But what I thought was pretty interesting was that in his final series, it went from 45.5 to 46.5. There wouldn't be many test cricketers who added an entire run to his average before Mm. he was dropped from the team. Of course, he made 276 in his final series, three test matches in Sri Lanka, including a century and a a couple of 50s. So, yeah, just on that blunt measure of averages, it was a very strange time to drop him. I mean, we were very raw about it as Victorian kids growing up, and we never really let it go, as we explained in our our tribute episode to Dean Jones when he passed away last Mm. September. But, yeah, just going back through it again, uh, 46.55, an odd time for him to have lost his spot in the Australian team. Yeah, um Exactly that. And you've obviously spent a lot of time on the cumulative averages section of Dino's career. I was having a look at at that section of James Anderson's batting career because he only recently dropped out of double figures. He'd spent almost all... In fact, James Anderson, after I think seven, either seven test matches or seven test innings, had an average of 42 because he'd accumulated a bunch of runs and only been out once. And and he stayed in double figures for the best part of the 
I don't know, 40 odd years that he's been playing test cricket <laughs> and then dropped down to about 9.4 recently and then got back up to 9.55 with his unbeaten innings in the fourth test match in India. So I think we need to keep an eye on Anderson's batting average just as we're going to keep an eye on his wicket tally on the final word over the next few yeah. months. Yeah, I thought that was a nice segue, Jeff. So we, we've in the past we've we've had little goals that we've set with the the patron contributor number, which is remarkably up to five hundred eighty four, and that's just an amazing thing. Uh, we love you all for that. It's two years this month since we started sort of receiving pledges, and to think that we're um, still growing that platform the way we are is just a wonderful thing. So, um, but it means we've passed Lakshman, Lara. I think we had two eighty one, three seventy five, and four ninety nine as our yep. three goals. The third, of course, being Hanif Muhammad highest first class score uh, the second highest first class score ever so we're like what's next well there's a figure we've done the all the batting numbers we've, we've kind of passed what you can yeah. make with the bat basically yeah and right now jimmy has taken 614 test wickets mm-hmm. so he's ahead of us uh, by 32 so i suppose i'm thinking if we can overtake jimmy before he plays his next test match yeah which will be presumably in june uh, against New Zealand. That'd be a nice thing. If we could just nudge ahead of him. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe after that, we can have a bit of a stretch goal and try and overtake his first-class wickets tally, which is uh, only 12 away from 1,000. But that's a, that's a fair mm. way down the track. Well, perhaps. maybe we end up in a bit of a race with Jimmy. If he takes a bag full against <laughs> New Zealand, he gets a couple of 10-wicket matches. Maybe he takes the lead exactly. again. We get back ahead. He comes back in August. Let's yes, see. Like Let's it. race Jimmy on... The final word. (laughs) So if you want to be part of the fun, you can go to patron.com slash the final word, make an account, and then you can send us, you you set your amount and that sends us a notification. We'll put your number on the list and we will come to it on the show in the weeks and months to come. It's a lot of fun. We'd love to have you be part of it. And if you haven't been listening to our Storytime apps, um, they've been going really well. Uh, They take a lot of work uh, telling all these old stories, but even looking through uh, some of the numbers for the week we've got ahead, uh, there's some cracking tales there. So join us midweek, but also join us on Saturday and Sunday for Storytime. Jeff, let's take a break. Let's cool our jets. And when we return, it'll be us chatting to Mark Butcher. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to The Final Word Podcast. They say that Christmas comes but once a year. But if Christmas were instead the publication of a cricket magazine named Wisden Cricket Monthly, it would come but once a month. That's because that's how many months are in a year. One of those months is December in which Christmas comes. But in the other 11 months when there's no Christmas, you can have a different Christmas in the form of Wisden Cricket Monthly, a magazine that you can buy about cricket. How does it interact with your comparison when we have Christmas in July events each mm. year? Well, then- we heard from Sarah Berman, one of our patrons last week, about the Malvern yep. Cricket Week, which happens in one week across yep. seven days yep. out of every 52. Yep. It's not but a weekly. She, they do, it's, it's a, they it's do a, a Christmas style, a Christmas in July style. I think that was there, August. So you could, go to, in August, you could go to Christmas in July, as some people do it, and then go to a Christmas in August at Cricket Week and then have regular Christmas. So Christmas comes but three times a year. But that would still be one quarter of the times that Wisdom Cricket Monthly comes out, which is 12. I was going to say, it doesn't mean we get 36. Just to be clear, we don't get 36 magazines nope. in the event of Christmas coming thrice. No, nope. they don't, they don't change the number. It's a good thing then. <laughs> it's a good thing then it's the best cricket mag in the world then. Mm. That inside 12 editions, you get the value that you might get out of 36. Certainly that's how I interpret our generous offer where you say 44%. This edition of the magazine I read last week and it is 
especially good. There's a long feature in the middle about black cricketers. It's 40 years since Roland Butcher made his debut for England to become England's first black test cricketer. Mm -hmm. So that's looked at in some depth. Uh, Phil Walker looking at the impact Joffre Archer's had on English cricket in the last couple of years. Of course, now as a World Cup winning fast bowler. There's uh, discussions had around Chris Lewis, Devin Malcolm, Ebony Rainford, Brent, Alex Tudor. So as usual, uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly on the front foot um, discussing some of the, the broader issues around the game, which is so pertinent to what's happening in it at the moment. Yep, that's right. Um, and, and that's something that we talk about in the show to come with Mark Butcher as well. So there's a lot of other material in there as well. Andy Flower talking to John Stern. We've talked about Andy Flower a bit on this show in the last couple of weeks. Ted Dexter, always a great name, ushering in the swinging 60s in his golden summer. That's the, the segment where uh, somebody tells you about their favourite summer of cricket. So Dexter will be doing that. And uh, Muhammad Asif is talking to Saj Sadiq about the sorcery of fast bowling and uh, torpedoing his own international career just when he looked destined for greatness. There's the usual band of columnists. Izzy Westbury's column actually mentions our uh, our interview with Marcus Stoinis, which is nice. She's uh, going into the selection policies of different teams, talking about good blokes, uh, good people and everything in between, but mostly about good cricketers. Andrew Miller uh, is in there, as is Neil Manthorpe. Uh, Manners is uh, writing about the... Uh, well, going through the entrails of Australia's non-tour of South Africa. My column uh, is about Justin Langer, but it's really about sort of power in Australian cricket and how it's exerted and how it's best exerted, which is implicitly. And that's yeah. why Langer wasn't, I don't think anyway, in my opinion, ever really uh, under any threat of being sacked when those stories came out. Earlier in the year after the India loss, uh, Andy Zaltzman in his new column, I really have been enjoying this. It's kind of like Nerd Pledge, but an extended version of it about the number 28. So he just takes a number and goes for gold on that number. Um, we've done that with Andy on the final word in the past. So We've done that with, with the number 213 on the final word in we the have. past as well. So, uh, you know, I, I like that you said an extended version when our show around Nerd Pledge goes for like at least an hour. I'm not sure how much more extended it can get. Anyway, Dan Gallon's two in, hours last week nearly. <laughs> oh, God. Daniel Gallon's in there as well talking about the South African coal packs and the, the end of the coal pack era. Yeah, so plenty in the magazine. And the point is that if you subscribe to it, using our sweet intro, then uh, you get a massive discount. It's almost half price. You use the code that's in the show notes or the, the link that's in the show notes. Hit that and it will take you to the final word special offer page. Yeah, that's right. No further codes or anything needed. Bitly, bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW, as you say, Jeff, easiest in the notes. And the next edition of the magazine, it's the big one they put out each year to herald the start of a new county season. So everything you could possibly want uh, about the English domestic game ahead of uh, when it kicks off again. I think that's on April the 5th or something like that. And they've also got an exclusive interview with the new chair of the ECB, Ian Watmore, who has talked to Joe Harmon, the magazine editor. And I suppose Ian Watmore said a lot of good things uh, since he's taken over. Uh, he's certainly an improvement on his predecessor. So uh, looking forward to seeing how that comes up with Joe. But yes, bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. 10 quid for six editions on your iPad. Perfect to read it on there. Or 15 Australian dollars to get the best cricket mag in the world. Six editions for 10 quid or 15 bucks. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
On the final word today, we have former England international, but these days, international commentator with Sky Sports and Talk Sport. More recently in Sri Lanka and in India are on the freelance beat uh, doing television on India's away tours. Uh, Mark Butcher, <laughs> thanks for coming and having a chat. No problem. No problem. It's very nice to be, uh, nice to be here. Well, it's nice to be anywhere at the moment, I guess. Yeah, uh, it is. And, and I suppose we're doing the Zoom thing, which is the, which we should know off the top. Of course, we, we can't be in the same room as uh, one another, but we'll, we'll do the best we can with those uh, limitations. Of course, they're, they're, these limitations we've become all too familiar with. And mentioned you've been in Asia over the last few months. Mm. Um, that was a big call, really, wasn't it? Leaving family and friends and going away to be um, not only in bubbles with the teams, I suppose, and the commentary teams in Sri Lanka and India, but also having to go through a number of quarantine bubbles and all the rest either side of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had a, a, a little sort of taster of it doing... I was in Pakistan before to finish off their P- PSL, which is obviously now that they've uh, they've lost the second one or the which what number six they're on at the moment. Yeah. That one's just been uh, just been halted halfway through, um, and so I was in that position uh, back in March in 2020 while I was out there doing the the comp, and it got uh, it got called off on about the 12th of March, I think, mm-hmm. and then and then so eventually went back and did the finals, the playoffs um, in October of last year, um, and so yeah, I mean look. I, I, I was relatively sanguine about the whole thing. I mean, you know, there's no one on the planes. There's no, nobody's traveling. You're kind of, you're almost safer zipping around the place to go and work than you are, you know, getting on the tube to go to, to go into London. So I, I, there was no problem with that. I mean, the quarantine side of things was a, was a bit of a, was, was great for five or six days <laughs> in Sri Lanka. I had a beautiful balcony and I was looking out over the, over the beach and over the water um, writing a few songs and reading and, and generally not being bothered by people, which was tremendous. Um, but after five days, I wouldn't recommend much more than that. It starts to you start to lose your mind a little bit. But uh, but there you go. That's that's where we are at the moment. Yeah, I'm not volunteering myself for 15 nights in hotel quarantine in Perth again anytime soon. <laughs> Hopefully, the next time that I'm I'm back over there, it's in slightly different uh, circumstances. Uh, watching you call over the last few weeks on television, especially, it reminded me of something that Ian Smith said to us during the Calling the Shots documentary last year about the fact that he, he's an overnight sensation who's just happened to be doing this for 30 years, and there seems a little <laughs> bit of that around you at the moment. It's not as though you're new to television broadcasting you've been in the caper uh, since you retired from well since you stopped playing uh, domestic cricket back in 2009 and had a lot of experience before that but it feels like it has been somewhat of a a watershed moment for you calling these tests in Asia is that how it's been experienced by you as well that you in a way you've you've almost taken a next step this winter yeah it it sort of occurred to me that your exact words really the sort of the, the 15 year overnight sensation thing but I'm very very grateful to have had the had the flight hours behind me really you know it's been great to do test matches i've i've done i've done as much t20 and uh, and you know domestic 50 over cricket and various other things um and it's all been fabulous experience but um you know hardly done any test match cricket and of course that was the only thing i played quite famously yeah um and so it's just really nice to be able to get the chance to you know the way that test matches move. There are there are just so many more talking points. There are so many more nuances. There are so many more sort of periods of periods where it's quiet, periods where it's up. You know, you have to you have to go through the full range of um, the full range of, of emotion with it, as opposed to T Twenty when you're kind of like shrieking like a banshee from start to finish. <laughs> you know, um, and so it was just really nice, and lovely to get the opportunity to do it. I mean, it only came up because of COVID. You know, on the one hand, it's been bloody miserable but on the other hand it's it's meant that I was in Sri Lanka when they were looking for people to come 
and commentate from from the England point of view. And if I hadn't have been in Sri Lanka, I probably wouldn't have got the gig. You know, there was massive difficulties in getting people. You know, they would have preferred Nasser and Athers and, and the guys from Sky to come over and and do their thing. But there was, you know, the, the, the quarantine periods coming from the UK were 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 fourteen days and cost and every, just everything about it was a nightmare. Mm. So the fact that I was in, uh, you know, in Gaul, and uh, notionally a forty-five minute plane journey away, although I did have to go all the way back to Abu Dhabi to come back, but that's another story. Uh, meant that I got, you know, I, I got the gig. So it was so great fun, um, and you know, very grateful. Like as I said, very grateful to have had an enormous amount, and it is an enormous amount of experience doing all various types of things. You know, whether it be presenting, whether it be. Um, sort of roving reporter style stuff that Sky put me on um, for the IPLs back in the day, basic commentary, league commentary, whatever, whatever it might be. Mm, I've kind mm. of been there and, and had had the chance to build all of that into my CV. So it just, you know, I was able to just go in there and enjoy it. And it was a lot of fun. Mark, we've known for a long while that commentators working for the BCCI uh, have things they're not supposed to talk about and not allowed to and so on. It seemed like a lot of the response <laughs> to you, the, the, the positive response and enthusiasm for you was that you were willing to say things that might not be entirely company sanctioned or all the rest of it. But it also seemed faintly ridiculous that that was seen to be exceptional because it's not like what you were saying was anything hugely critical or, or um, vicious or egregious. No. It was it was very politely and good-humouredly stepping slightly out of line. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, the, the, nobody spoke to me before, during or after any of the test matches to say, okay, we'd prefer it if you didn't go here or we'd prefer it if you were, um, you know, uncritical of, of everything that you're watching. That, that didn't happen. So, you know, let, let's put that to bed straight away. And you know, I, I understand that there there can be various pressures brought to bear on on uh, on on the guys from the home team, but I don't, I didn't realise that that was happening. I did, I had no inkling that that was the case. And as you say, you know, if 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 people were kind of noticing the fact that there might have been a little bit of disagreement or niggle in the commentary box, that's what that's what you that's what the viewers at home love. And I think the only the only real philosophy, if there is one from my point of view when it comes to 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 calling games and stuff is that you know put yourself in the put yourself on the sofa at home you know imagine what what would you like to be listening to how how would you you know how would you want to be entertained by what you're seeing and so you know i i try to avoid coaching where i can unless something extraordinary has happened that because if you know if you're talking to an audience that sat down to watch test match for seven or eight days they're gonna they're gonna know more about it than than perhaps is given credit to them for and other than that, just just tell them what's happening. Just call, just call what's in front of you. You know. <laughs> yeah, and there's and there's some similarities there, I suppose, to uh, what Nasser Hussain said to us last year when having having this conversation with him. That from his perspective, it's about uh, keeping the the viewer entertained and informed, and mm. sort of leaving all the other baggage at the door, and, and treating this not like just something that he happened to step into after playing cricket and trading yeah. off his name as a former international, but uh, becoming a, an authentic and true and legitimate broadcaster. And, and that's a similar journey that you've been on, which equips you to speak with authority when, when the time asks for it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it does the, the game, it does, it does broadcasting a massive disservice to kind of not, not take it as its own job, you know, as its own skill and its own set of... Um, um, you know, rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. Um, you know, I, I'm very, very aware of the fact that as a, as a former player, I would have been afforded um, more opportunities 
to you know to have a microphone and to to, to call live games than than guys who have been working in radio and television all their lives, you know. And so there's a responsibility there, I think, to to take the broadcasting side of it very seriously, and and as you say, not just fall back on the fact that you that you played once many moons ago and that that is enough you know you, there are skills and, and things that are that are as far away removed from being a former player as they could possibly be and you have to mm, treat the mm. treat the job like that you know hopefully hopefully i stay true to that i mean it's, it can be difficult sometimes especially when you're sat in a commentary box which is full of people who used to do your job you know you kind of you the the the, the, the temptation to kind of fall into a into a dressing room style kind of way of, 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 of bantering um, is it can be difficult to resist. But again, you know, hopefully, I mean, the, see, the other, the other side to it is this, is that the job is not, you're not there to cheerlead for one side or the other. That's, that's the other side of it. You, you're as critical of, of England as you are Australia, as you are of India, as you are of anybody else. And as long as you can do that and you can call out, shithousery from your side as much as you can from the other side then you're then you're then you're halfway there and then the rest of it is just trying to be yourself as much as you possibly can and with me that you know that involves not not seeing it as it's not life or death it's a game and hopefully it's fun <laughs> although you know there were times during the last series where it wasn't a lot of fun for for our boys but um mm. you know that's that, that that's it is in terms of hitting that quality mark is is that something that it has to be self-driven or, you know, might be if you and a handful of other colleagues who do that because we, you know, so much of the time, you've mentioned this before as well, there's no training really given to former player broadcasters. It's just mm. you've retired, you're famous, here's a microphone, off you shoot. And there's very little criticism <laughs> given by, you know, directors on a lot of the programs. Do, do you Did you have to decide yeah. that you wanted to be as good as you could possibly be? Well, I'll put it this way, but Sky, Sky in the UK, as I said, I'm sort of really thankful to them for having given me an opportunity to do this going back as far as sort of 1999, mm. you know, sitting in live studios and mm. things like that. Um, and the thing that the thing that you learn or the thing that you were wise to kind of keep an eye out for was the fact that you wouldn't get invited back if you weren't kind of showing that you had a, a, an interest in it beyond picking up the check. And so then it, then it became, you know, sort of having conversations with, presenters more senior people the guys in the you know the guys working vt the guys the directors trying to kind of get some sort of an idea of what the of what television right. is like you know the, the the fact that you know cricket is is taken as red that's mm. why they've asked you but tv in itself and making television and who who does what and who's who, what you know the lighting guys the floor managers all, all these types of things you know trying to have some sort of an interest in the production as a whole and that you know i, I don't think i understood that until quite a bit later on I kind of had managed to survive getting the odd gig here and there but then you kind of realize if I want to do this if I want them to kind of to, to, to hire me on a more regular basis mm. I've kind of got to got to step up step my game up a little bit and being a, and just being a former player just isn't enough and so yeah it is self-driven to, to a certain extent and you know necessity driven as well you know mother of invention and all that kind of stuff not having a tremendous amount of skill outside of the game of cricket and having decided that Having decided that I I wasn't going to you know I didn't really fancy being in dressing rooms for the rest of my life having spent nearly all of it in them up until that point you know you had to you got to kind of go up, get your head down and, and treat it as a skill that is there to be learned and to try and to try and be as good as it as you possibly can as as I try to do when I play. Well, let's go back to dressing rooms and 
your earliest days in them uh, and we'll swing through your, your life in cricket and perhaps return to broadcasting a little bit later. Because, I mean, your life was in a dressing room there at the Oval. Your dad, of course, being a champion of the club through the 70s and 80s and yeah. having played test cricket himself, albeit once, yeah. but still nevertheless an international player, means something on the county scene. And, I mean, it, it, you've described Surrey as having been in your blood fr- from the outset, so there was kind mm-hmm. of little surprise that you would go on to get a contract as a teenager and, and start playing the game that you loved. But... Give us a feel for what it was like being a little kid in the dressing room with all these heroes around you and your dad being one of them. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just just the the best thing ever, you know, being surrounded by by cricket kit, you know, brand new cricket kit and, you know, Whitener and stuff like that and having having people like Jeff Howarth and Sylvester Clark and people, you know, you call them uncle. My old man didn't drive when he was playing for Surrey, so he, you know, all the guys used to come and have to pick him up, so they'd all pop into the house and <laughs> and say hi, so... You know, I, 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 it never occurred to me that I would do anything else, which is which is kind of handy, I suppose. Sort of blissful ignorance um, of the fact that stuff could go wrong because it just, you know, I, I was in the Surrey dressing room from the age of about three years. Why wouldn't I be there for the, you know, for the next thirty or something? So, it was a great time. It really, really was. Me and my brother used to. I mean, we still have people come up to to me now who were Surrey fans, you know, members or whatever back in the day when you, when we used to, when we were kids, you used to be allowed to go out on the outfield and, and ping a tennis ball around. And we'd be sort of like using members as target practice in the pavilion, you know, but like pinging, uh, pinging drives into the, into the <laughs> pavilion at lunchtime at the close of play. I mean, that's what we did. And, you know, still, like I said, those, that, those of them are still around will go, oh, we remember you, you hit old Doris on the end with a, with a, with a cover drive or something. Uh, <laughs> so yeah i mean it just just fantastic and so you know all of that all of that bled into the, the into the idea that um you know this is what i wanted to do you know i had no, and, and as i said i had no real plan b um in fact no i had no plan b it was that was that was what it was going to be unfortunately i was blessed enough as was my brother with with enough stuff with enough ability to kind of to make that a reality mm. um and you know the difference between the difference between being sort of like the best at age under twelves, under thirteens in your school, and in your year, and all that kind of stuff is a world away from what then happens when you when you sign a professional contract and stuff. You know, sort of standing out at, at under nineteen level or whatever as a, as a sixteen, seventeen year old was, and then then you enter a completely different world when you're doing it for a, for a job, and everybody else is trying to jump on your head as, as much as uh, as much as the opposition are. Um, but yeah, like I say, it, it was a it, it was a it was a journey that 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 was mapped out as far as I was concerned. It didn't seem to be any other any other course. Was there a kind of vertigo going up those levels? You know, because we hear a lot of people talk about this being, like you say, the best at your school or something, and you're monstering the competition in in that grade. But then as soon as you go up to the next level, it's something mm. else completely. Yeah, I mean, I, I was again, I kind of had always been challenged or sort of thrown in um younger or you know i was playing sort of first 11 club cricket in the surrey championship um sort of age 15 or something you know so i was always playing with people who were my elders and betters but i think one of the differences but so i signed contract with surrey at age 17 and i think we might have had sort of 28 29 maybe 30 professionals on the staff back then so when you come in as a as a, as a seventeen a snotty nose seventeen year old with a bit of a you know cocky and a bit of a swagger, that that sort of thing you know nowadays is completely different. You know the, the, these these guys eighteen year olds are playing in the IPL in front of forty thousand right. people, 
the 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 way of things with seniority and and all the other sort of old time stuff that has has pretty much left the county game now. And I you know I can't speak for what happened in Australia and state cricket, but was that you kind of you had to wait your turn? No, so you were literally you weren't you wouldn't bat in in pre season nets. You wouldn't do anything but sort of bowl field and and run around after the the senior pros you probably wouldn't pick up a bat until you were sort of two or three weeks into the season starting so it, it was just a that's just the way it was you know i didn't i didn't make my first class debut for i so i played two seasons two full seasons of sort of second 11 cricket before i, I maybe played a couple of 40 over games but didn't make my first class debut until the very back end of 1992. So it was a couple of years before I'd got anywhere near the sort of first team. And, and probably quite rightly so too. But but the, the the idea wasn't we signed these kids age 17 and we fast tracked them in. It was we signed them age 17 and we and we kind of and we batter them and maybe, you know, one or two of them sort of get get through, you know, one or, one or two of them stick it out, but most of them don't, you know. If they've got the patience. Yeah. Yeah, so you go on this like this trajectory of being, you know, second team, first team. Five years later, you're, you're playing for England, you're in the test team, which again, mm. whether that was foretold or otherwise, you're there. I found it interesting reading through um, interviews you've done in the past. There's a couple of competing threads here. There's the Mark Butcher, the bravado that you had as a kid coming through. Uh, up against a, a, a sort of an imposter syndrome that you first felt as an international cricketer in that first chapter. Mm. Is that how you've been able to look at it going back, that you had quite a lot going on above the shoulders in terms of balancing out <laughs> this inherent cockiness that you had then uh, yeah. against sort of a sense of, gee, maybe I'm not quite yet at this level as a test opening batsman? Yeah, I think that, I think you only realise that once you once you play it, though. That was the thing. Right. It kind of it, That happened. I only re- had the realisation that, oh, my God, this is really tough. Having been in it for for a couple of well, not quite a couple of years, but a few series. Yeah. So you know everything everything up until if you take out the sort of the early years of, of being the sort of the junior pro at the Oval, myself and Adam Hollyoak signed at the, at the same time, and we were the same we were the same character really. I mean, he's probably sort of you know slightly more slightly more flinty, slightly tougher than I was, but in terms of how our outlook and what we wanted to do. Where we wanted to, end. we both saw ourselves playing for England. You know, there was no doubt mm, that that was mm. that was the goal. So from there to actually making that debut. Now on on you know, so made my debut against Australia in an Ashes series. Now I didn't really. I, I have to tell you this. I didn't really understand how much of a big deal the Ashes was. Right. For some reason, it was it was not a, it wasn't a conversation. Maybe it was because England had lost them for for so many years on the bounce. You know, and it had been such a long time since. 81 and, and beefy and the, and the 86 and 87 tour um, or whatever. But it kind of, you know, it, it strangely it escaped me just how, how important that all of that was in the grand mm. scheme of, um, in, in the grand scheme of cricket, in, in the grand scheme of cricket, not just um, England, in, as far as being an Englishman is concerned. We'd been on an A tour 96, um, which Adam Hollyoak captain, and we all but the first game we lost to a New South Wales second eleven, I think, in one of our first matches, and then won every game from there on in. And a lot of the guys, you know, so myself, Ashley Giles, Michael Vaughan, mm. um, Adam Hollyoak, Dean Headley, a lot of guys who you know who, who were making their making their way would eventually end up playing for England, who were on that trip. Anthony McGrath, I mean, there's loads loads of people. And so again, it was kind of like, well, this is easy, isn't it? You know, you're just gonna, you'll get, you'll rock up and play, you'll get picked, and 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 the, that trajectory will just continue the way that it always had. Um, but you know, after the first, so the first test, 
first test, Edgbaston, England win, you know, mm. and we're all on the front pages of the of the, the red tops and stuff. So again, no, oh, this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> this is brilliant. <laughs> I didn't make any runs particularly, but it was kind of, we just, you know, we just smashed them. Brilliant. And then by the, so I, I think I get nor or, you know, not very many in the first innings at, at Lords and McGrath took seven for or whatever. And you wake up, whatever it is, the next morning and you're out of the team pretty much. You know, the the, the, the news, the scribes have had enough. They've sort of seen you and decided after three innings that you're not going to, you're not good enough. You're not going to make it. So you're done. Mm. So I get, I think I get dropped on naught or something in the in the second innings. Mike Taylor of all people drops me at, at first slit, relatively easy chance, but I swear to God, I swear to God looking t- as I turned round, the ball righted itself. I think it was Paul rifle bowling about three meters away from him. It just, the seam stood up and it just swung at him and it hit him on the wrist. I mean, Mark Taylor not laying a not laying a mitt on it, um, and I made eighty something, you know, eighty seven, and, and saved the game. And so, you know, there you go. You've gone from being utterly useless two days beforehand to you know bravery and all this kind of crap in the papers the next day. And there, and there it was. There was the roller coaster had begun, and it and it never it didn't get any easier than that at all. For particularly particularly in that period between making my debut in ninety seven and. Um, you know, then then being left out of the team at the end of the South Africa Tour ninety nine two thousand. Yeah, so these 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 high points and, and low points as you're mm. a young player in the Test team. You know, Test hundred in one of the most I suppose uh, fondly looked upon series in in modern memory against South Africa in ninety eight. Mm. So get yourself off the mark there at Leeds and and Ashes hundred at Brisbane, which admittedly it was a a drawn match in the end, but the, the very fact that you were able to start that series so well, you get mm. those points, but on, and you become the England captain, albeit briefly too, in that terrible yeah. summer of 1999 yeah. against New Zealand when NASA's injured. But on the other side of it, I mean, you're battling. And again, you've, you've talked in the past about how this was a, a constant struggle for you and, um, you know, things weren't uh, going well for you off the field either. Um, mm. It was a, a volatile period of time. Yeah. Do you think with the sort of benefit of hindsight, that there was a degree of, we wouldn't call it, we necessarily wouldn't necessarily call it it then, but you were experiencing a, a sort of a depressive period in your life whilst being an England player. That volatility sort of was the, the through line uh, in that period of 1999 especially. Yeah, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd made, some, made some pretty average decisions in my personal life, of, you know, um, which result, you know, resulted in, in my having two beautiful daughters within within less than a year of each other um and you know i'd wrecked a marriage in the in the course of, of doing that and various other things so there was all kinds of stuff going on off, off the field but i think one of the defense mechanisms that i had built up was i i, I kind of believed that i knew what i was doing i you know, had enough people sort of tell me at the over oh well this kid really knows his game he knows what he's up to blah 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 and therefore, when things were going badly, I kind of didn't have anybody to turn to because I was supposed to know. I didn't have a, uh, you know, I didn't have a, sort of a mentor, if you like, who perhaps was, was a little bit removed from everything else that's going on. You have coaches and all that kind of stuff, all fine, who could kind of strip things back a little bit and kind of make me, make me stop and have a little look around and readjust adjust what I was doing physically on the field, definitely adjust what I was doing off it. Um, that might well have made that all of those things better. And the bizarre thing is, is that that didn't really change. I mean, the, 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 my international career was in very much in two halves. But it didn't really change in the second half. 
except for the fact that that because I was out of the out, out of the game, that I, I I just asked my old man to help, and so we had three months. I had three months of having that mentor, and that three months got me three years, but reasonably mm. successful um, in Test cricket, sort of from two thousand and one onwards. That three months, and again, you know, after after that happened, I don't think we ever we never really kind of went back into things in that sort of detail, and I never really. Um, uh, got my headspace as clear as it had been in that time, but it was enough. Um, you know, I was able to to keep the keep the wolves at bay and play well enough and enjoy it enough for it to kind of go all, all right from that point on. You mentioned getting credited with bravery after getting dropped. It it's, relates to something that I'm always interested in with cricket, which is the way that we, from a media perspective, apply a sort of moral projection onto what players do on the field you know that that I, I sort of have a theory that what happens in cricket is more about luck and good or bad fortune than you might want to admit you know you can prepare as well as you can but whether you get runs on a day or don't um, can be down to fortune as much as anything else but then we project something mm. onto it someone makes runs and we say oh how, how brave they were someone doesn't make runs and they were weak or you know it was a a, a weak <laughs> shot or a, a, a soft dismissal and all the rest of it um, I'd be interested in your mm. perspective on that well I mean it, I think the cricket sort of reveals character doesn't it I think that's 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 I think that's a given it doesn't form your character, it reveals what your character is. And that's an important distinction. And because because test matches in particular are played over such a long period of time, you know, if, if, if I were a football player and I'd had a terrible week at home, but I'd been out, I'd gone training, couple, you know, two or three hours a day up until Saturday, I reckon now you could get through Saturday. Mm. You know what I mean? The bus journey the game 90 minutes on the way back and then you go back to life after that you can kind of park it for that period of time but if 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 the walls are crumbling around you and you've got five days stretching out in front of you with potentially a three-day gap and then another five days it's kind of you know that that time that time where your brain is kind of you know is being bombarded with various um either stimuluses or or the opposite of whatever the stimuluses are beta blockers <laughs> um, the uh you know you it's very difficult to kind of to function at a high level an elite level to use that awful word um over that period of time that you need to have some quiet the brain needs to be quiet enough to kind of do, to be able to do what it needs to do yeah. and if you if you're not in that if you're not in that headspace and you're in your private life or your life outside of the game is a mess um it is i, I some people can do it. I know. I know some people who have been able to do it, but not very many. Do you think that might have a bit to do with the fact that, uh, for a lot of cricketers, that uh, in order to get that quiet, they turn to other vices? Take booze, for example. Again, you've been pretty open about the fact that yeah. you drank pretty heavily through that um, stage of your career. Mm. I mean, in the absence of being able to get clarity, it's like, well, I'll get it another way. I'll, I'll get it <laughs> sort of at the bottom of a bottle or whatever it is, to use the cliche. Yeah, get, yeah. Get, get quiet that way, at least. Get your bromides that way. Yeah, but, but it's also, I think also, you know, again, that era of, of cricket, you know, you, you listen to the guys talking from the, who played in the 70s and 80s, there is not a story that doesn't end or begin with 
beer or <laughs> you know being in the bar or whatever else it was i mean that was kind of that was just that was it you know i right. i grew up with you know the, the old man and and and, and those teams or whatever they were very social you had the pub right next to the oval the, the surrey tavern me and my brother would be running around climbing over the brick walls while the team would be in there having a drink with the opposition after every day's play um it was just you know it was very much you know, club cricket club cricket is entirely based around booze mm. isn't it? you know the the, the bars being open mm. means that the clubs function you get a jug for this a jug for that um you know it was it's all very much part of the culture you know, in terms of then using it as a as a way of you know, I hard I I found it very very difficult to sleep. So you you know you'd you'd have a few drinks in order to try and mm. make that easier, but that would uh, obviously, as as we all know, that that's that's a very bad way to try and get proper sleep because you don't. So then you think you need more, and you know it, it, it just it, it perpetuates. But I, but again, you know, talk about the sort of reputational type things. I I, I had the had the ability in inverted, inverted commas to kind of not have very much sleep, have a huge night out and then turn up the next day like nothing had happened, you know, and that became a sort of like a, a superpower. Yeah. You know, another one of those weird things where you, um, where, where a, 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 an objectively bad thing became something that people looked up to you mm-hmm. for, you know, mm. <laughs> very, very bizarre. <laughs> um, but, that, you know, that, that was the time. That was, that was, that was how things were. Yeah. Well, just to go back to that relationship with your dad did, did you get much of a chance when you were a kid to watch him play did you have that you know moments that stand out of, of seeing him sort of being able to be the hero on the field because that's this it's like seeing someone on stage when they're when they're on the field they they become somehow more than human in some sort of way but to to be watching that being your own father i imagine would be you know could be a very powerful experience or or might be something yeah, else yeah it could it could be but I, but they were but again they were so these guys were so they were so familiar mm. to me that it, it was that wasn't really the case i remember meeting larry gomes and and viv when uh, with the, there was a, a it was either a tour game or a sort of charity game where the, the, the west indies team were over in maybe 84 I remember that that was the first yeah. time I thought, whoa, you know, these these guys are, you know, something else. And so, no, I mean, I didn't. I mean, and when I'd spend all that time at the Oval, but again, I'd be, there used to be a hard net or whatever at the, at the Vauxhall end. And we were allowed to go and use them because of, because dad was dad. Um, and so, you know, I'd very rarely see any cricket. I'd be, I'd be playing myself. Yeah. But I do remember getting nervous watching him on the, on the TV once or twice, sort of, you know, hoping and praying that he'd, he'd make some runs, you know. But uh, but beyond that, no, it was it was not that it wasn't that type of thing. I know I know that I was very proud that he played, and I, I know that he, I was very proud that people had a lot of respect for him as a as a as an opening batsman and a player of fast bowling. So yeah, and, and I suppose that that time in the wilderness that you had after getting admitted from the side in ninety nine two thousand, and then mm. when you returned to it, you've talked about that sort of intense period working with your dad, who of course is a, an exceptional sort of highly regarded coach as well. It's yeah. not just a, a father-son thing, but from a technical perspective, able to get get you back on track from being a second-team player, remarkably, at the start of mm. 2001, to being a hero at Headingley later in, in that year. And yeah. again, you, you've talked in the past about how you found a way through in the in-between time to evaluate what cricket really was to you and uh, lose a little bit of baggage, which meant that by the time you, you, you were called and, and got that second sustained opportunity that you had that broader perspective. And, and maybe I wonder the extent to which that might have been uh, achieved from your father, given uh, you'd seen so much of him, but plays one test match and thus he sort of scaled that height. But uh, it didn't make him any less a personal 
cricketer or father because he hadn't played a hundred test matches. You know, uh, there's, no. there's a way. There's a way of threading it together there, right? I, I think so. Um, but but also, I mean, I'd never, I had never spent that sort of time with him before. Right. Never. I mean, you know, when when I was a kid and me and my brother Gary were kids, we would see Dad in the winters when he was coaching us football and PE at the school that he taught at in the off seasons. Um, and so we would see him, and that he'd be a teacher then. Um, and then in the summers he'd be off playing. So there were, we didn't. Uh, so the only time I'd ever spent that sort of time with him, uh, particularly around something as something that you would imagine that he'd have been in the garden throwing balls at me the whole time, and just wasn't the case. Right. So that the January January to to April time that we spent in two thousand and one was was utterly unique in our relationship, and. It worked because I was at such a low ebb that I, I, I said to him, um, you know, do what you like. Treat me like I've never played the game before because I'm thinking about quitting because I'm having no, I'm, I'm hating it. And so, but, but I want to, I want to give it one, one last shot. Um, so, so I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I won't fight you. Just, you know, do what you like. You treat me like I'm a, a, I'm a, I'm a piece of putty and, and do what you want. And he did. It was literally we went back to him teaching me how to pick the bat up properly, to hold, like to grip the bat properly. He said he thought my grip had, had got had got too strong, hands too far around the back of the handle. Um, you know, I wasn't free enough in in the way that I meant that I wasn't free enough in the way that I could swing my arms. So he taught me how to pick the bat up. I was I played twenty seven Test matches. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, uh, so where are we? Two thousand one. So I'm what? How old? Twenty nine. Taught me how to stand, how to pick the bat up, how to grip it properly. All of these things. It went back as went back as far as that. Um, and I let him do it. You know, I can imagine in different circumstances, there's no way on earth that that would have happened. And I th- he said that to me since. He said that he wanted to make the call or he wanted to come and spend the time, but he just didn't didn't see how how I would take it. And I wouldn't have taken it well if he just sort of said to me in the middle of in the middle whilst I was still playing for him. Oh, you know, I, I actually don't think you're doing this very mm. well. <laughs> you know, fathers and sons and that that type of conversation. They're not they're not renowned for that working out. But it worked out this time because I had no I had no sort of fight or ego with me left to 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 um, to stop him. So um, and that's that's why it worked. And did you have an awareness at the time that spending time with him like that was something special and you know something that that hadn't happened before and wouldn't be replicated? I looked forward to it immensely. You know, we I think I can't remember exactly, but it felt like we, we'd spent every day of every week for for two and a half months together. It was it wasn't like that. It wasn't as as much time as that, but. Yeah, that's quite what it felt like, and I, I just, you know, it was like really being desperate to get to work every day, and we had a, you know, we had a really good time, and you know, there was—I don't know—I'd I'd have to talk to him about it, um, but th- there was something, there was something in the relationship that had not been there before, because of it, and you know, and then at the end, I, I remember, I remember vividly being told sort of after so you know this is obviously the lead up to, to 2001 and the heading the innings was that that he'd been in tears on the, the TMS had managed to get him on the phone at the end of the game and he was <laughs> and he was crying on the radio you know so some it was yeah it was it was really special and it, it, it never really happened again I mean we had a pretty frosty 
frosty old time a bit as captain and coach at the at the Oval back at sort of back in two thousand, where conversations went back to being father and son, you know, <laughs> stubborn and 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 cranky. So yeah, I mean, I think you know, I'll look back forever on that as being as, as being an incredible time with him. We often like talking to people on this show about their perfect day, the one day when everything clicks and when the game was never better for them, well, you know, chasing 3.15 on the final day at Leeds, the ground where you, you know, made your first test time, but three years mm. on from that, an unbeaten 173 faultless, flawless innings where you were at your most fluent and all the rest of it. I mean, mm. I, I don't suppose you would have had a chance to have thought about your dad too much when you were in the middle, but after that, obviously hearing his response on radio, but getting the chance to, I suppose, realise uh, this had been a building uh, from mm. the work you've been doing with him and you were able to experience that not just for you but for him as well yeah i mean uh, I, the, the one regret i have about that day is that i didn't mention it on you know the whole thing was just so bizarre so post-match interviews etc etc now if you look at the way that the guys are when they do man of the match appearances or the captains are talking about um are talking about matches that they've won or lost and whatever and how magnanimous everybody is and how much you know less self self-absorbed people are when they're talking generally you know not not everyone but generally and that's the one regret i have about that day was that i didn't mention him by name or or mention what we had done leading up to that in the in the post-match stuff but i was just i didn't really understand what had happened to be fair mm-hmm. i mean i know I, I knew that i'd been playing well in the series up until that point and felt like I owed, you know, I owed it to my to, to myself and I owed it to the team to kind of make a bit more of, because it was a struggle, you know, we were getting battered as always to make more of the form that I was in. But to play like that against that bowling attack was, you know, was, was the sort of stuff that dreams are made of. And so I didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me that, that it had happened at, directly and that there is no no equivocation about it directly because of what we what we'd done in those months all of the things that we'd spoken about all of the the gifts that he'd sort of given me in terms of freedom of the the hat, the bat swing freedom of being able to access all different parts of the park being more solid in defense footwork all of those things were direct a direct result of what we'd done so i bought him a, i bought him a very expensive watch at the end of that summer to say that <laughs> 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 um which he's, I think he's lost. Terrible we watches my old man. But anyway, you know, it's just um, it's one of those things. It's one, one, again, it, I don't know how many people get the chance to... And, and, and the, the innings itself and the day, you know, been been there and spoken about it so often, it's kind of, it bores me now. But mm. the chance to have done something um, and spent that time with, with, with a family member, somebody that you've been that close to, and have it pay dividends to that degree... You know, I know people have sort of uh, coaching relationships, you have tennis players and whatever, or you have caddies and you know the, the, the family members and all those types of things. But this was this was a little bit like I'm guessing was where the tears came from. It was a little bit like, uh, you know, teaching your teaching your little boy to kind of you know to ride a bike and watching them you know watching them ride off into the distance. It was that type of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll be. I'm forever grateful for that. And there's something symbolic there with the watch uh, being gone about you know the time that you share together and that you don't get back once it's gone. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, like I said, I don't think, I don't think nothing has ever. Is, is, we've never ever been that that sort of tied in or close or, or whatever since then. It was that that period, and it was incredible. And um, 
you know, now we now we just take the Mickey out of each other on WhatsApp every day, like <laughs> like, most, like most people do. <laughs> and I suppose thus begins this second stanza of your your international career from the two thousand and one Ashes onwards. But it's kind of hard to get into that without the diversion at the end of. Uh, the 0102 tour when you're in New Zealand and you receive the utterly tragic news that Ben Holyoke passes away, of course, a teammate at Surrey and mm. um, someone, a family, you know, you've grown up with the Holyokes, as you said, and that obviously significant no matter how we frame this up, but the very fact that you picked up the guitar for the first time since you were a teenager, the guitar which you kind of mm. put away, as you've explained subsequently, when um, you were signed by Surrey, uh, out it comes again to write a song of tribute to your friend and yeah obviously there, there's there's a lot here but um that that must be a, a time in your life not just your cricketing life that you think back on with such strong memories yeah i mean the the trip itself i mean imagine trying to play cricket after something like that happens yeah yeah um and we we that happened i i, I remember getting out in uh, Wellington, the test match was, and walking back into the dressing room and finding that the dressing room was empty. You know, I sat there taking my pads off and the TV's on in the corner of the room. No sound on. And a ticker tape runs across the bottom of the screen to say that Ben Holyoke's been killed in a, in a car accident in Perth. And I'm, I'm sort of sitting there reading this and there's no one else, no one else about. And I'm kind of thinking, where the hell is everyone? Do, mm. do, do they know about this? So I kind of chucked my gear off and went um, and found, you know, that everyone was sat in the in the viewing room at Wellington. There's a little viewing room out looking at, out on the game. And I burst into the room and I think, I can't remember whether it was Phil Neal, our team manager, kind of realised that something was up and sort of he grabbed me and took me out of the room before I had the chance to, to say anything. And I said, do you know what's happened? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what are we doing? What's going on? Did it do the boys know? Nobody knows yet. We're in the middle of whatever the session was. <sighs> and that, you know. So come, I think maybe lunchtime or whatever it was again. My timeline is a bit off on this. I don't really remember. But they, everybody was then told. And I just remember myself and Graham Thorpe um, out on the, you know, found, found a stairwell and kind of got through half a packet of cigarettes and kind of just sat there bawling our eyes out. And then we come back the next, you know, terrible night. We all, everyone goes out and has a drink and whatever. And turn up the next day and they do, you know, we all do a sort of a guard of honour stood out on the park before the, before the day starts with cameras kind of like right in your faces, panning up and down. And we're all just, we're just beside ourselves. And we had to play the, we had to play the game. Um, and, the, you know, the rest of the series, I barely remember what happened, you know. Um, so, shocker. I imagine at that point you could not give less of a shit about a cricket match. Exactly that, yeah. Exactly that. And, you know, it was you kind of, you tr- you, you're there to do a job and the people are buying tickets to come watch you play and all that kind of stuff. I think we drew the series one or we probably should have won the game in Wellington, funnily enough. But, um, you know, didn't have the, didn't have the will really to kind of push it over the line and then got, got, uh, Got ambushed on one of those um, those drop-in things at Auckland, I think, in the in the last one, and drew it one all, um, and that was that. Yeah, I'm interested in the, in that relationship between that tragedy, that terrible tragedy, and that emotional release you got from picking up the guitar and and investing mm-hmm. in your music and 
writing a song for his memorial service when you got back to the UK. I know you're not alone. People love to be with you. And how, how that all sort of ties together. Because, of course, your music's such a big part of your life and we haven't even really touched on it yet. Yeah, it's... um. Well, I mean, I, I always always took an acoustic guitar with me on, on tour. Right. Um, Stop the fingers going soft. <laughs> um, and so... I think we got taken up a, a, up one of the one of the famous hills there in, in Burlington, um, and and I, you know, I played um, Marley's Redemption song, I think, as we all sort of sat around and tried to make some sense of it. Just you know, bizarre type of thing. Um, but the the, the 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 song for the that I played at the memorial in um, in Southwark, I wrote when I got back home. Um, there was a bit more brain space. Um, to, to do that back then. And the, and the the wonderful thing about that was that we, that I was able to, I ended up in a recording studio. We, we made a we made a, a recording of it and sold it to raise money for the Ben Holyoke Fund. And then John and Daria, um, Adam and Ben's mum and dad, asked me if I'd play it for them at the, the big memorial service in Southwark Cathedral, which was one of the more terrifying things you would ever do. I mean that was that and it again good stuff comes out of something terrible um, in that I started to I started to sort of write and, and and that that side of my life sort of took off again with playing live and recording and various other things and, and I mean, that would end up leading to to my first album which was sort of six seven years later done otherwise um, which is pretty horrendous really, when you think about it that, that it that, that, that it was something like that but it but what well, I mean that's the way that life goes isn't it you kind of you have um, the, the, these tragedies or these 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 tremendous sort of high points and that you know that life then changes almost as a direct as a direct response to them doesn't it either either in terms of opportunity or in terms of something something not good happening that's just the way that it is and you're you're always sort of hostage to fortune in that way I think. That's one of the most interesting yeah. things about about everything, isn't it? About 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 life is that you're never really sure. You never really know. You can have a plan and you can decide that this is what I want to do or this is how I want to spend my life. This is you know this is the way that I'm going to make my living, etc. But sometimes circumstances pop in and you know events get in the way, either for better or for worse. 
Yeah, there's there's the chain of cause and effect that you can predict um, and that you can anticipate and and put into place, but then there are the the causes and the effects that you can never anticipate. Mm. Indeed, indeed, and they're all they, they seem to they seem to make uh, make regular appearances mm. in, uh, or at least they did through my through my twenties and thirties anyway. And then, I guess something that that I reckon I've noticed as I've got older is that um, those big moments, you know, whether they're the, the great moments of grief or, or of triumph, they, they seem so long ago, but they're also so present, you know, they can be, the, the years in between time can just disappear and you can be emotionally almost in exactly the same place when it comes back to you strongly. You can, you can. I mean, one, one of the things that I think that I've, that I've learned really is that, Generally speaking, that if you if you if you're open and available, but also if you if you kind of if you realise or recognise that there is that there is work to be done, or that there are, you know, that there are, um, it's not simply a case of just kind of things landing in your lap. Then you've got a pretty good chance of making them happen. You know, and it said you're always going back to what I was saying in the beginning that if 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 sort of reputationally I hadn't hadn't had people come chase after me to do the Sri Lanka trip on that one, then I wouldn't have been in the right place to have got the India trip. Now that's fortune for sure. But it's also, you know, you, you have to give yourself every once in a while, it's nice to give yourself a bit of a bit of a pat on the back and say, well, you know, perhaps you, perhaps you deserve that this time. Mm. Um, whereas in the, you know, I think in the early, in the early days, things would just happen. And I, and, and I wouldn't really have had a great deal of say or, or, or wouldn't have wouldn't have sort of put processes in place to make them happen. They were kind of either happy coincidences or just you know right place, right time. But I think you can have you can have a little bit more you can have a little bit more of a say in the in the unknown things if if you're putting the work in and you're trying trying your very best to do to do the best you can. Um, it gives you more of a chance. I think when you go through this stretch of playing consistent Test cricket for England thereafter, so between middle of 2001 and, and the end of 2004 you play every test you never dropped uh, you never injured 42 yeah. uh, on the bounce which is quite an effort when you consider the way that English cricket was uh, well I suppose not so much in the in the early 2000s but the reputation from the 90s yeah. which of course you later documented in that series you made for, for Sky Cricket but I'm interested in in the way that you prepared yourself through that stretch. So you're more emotionally available perhaps than you, than you had been before. You've been through quite a bit in your personal life, but as you've explained it in other interviews, you, you still managed to put up that, that wall around yourself, almost that protective shield, so that you could uh, have that sole focus of, of making runs and, and being productive for England. Yeah, I mean, look, again, again, I think, I think there's a certain amount of... There's a certain amount of, of bluff involved in all of it because... I made a promise to myself when I got selected. Again, I, when I was selected for that Ashes series in 2001, it was because five other blokes had fallen down injured before the series started. So I was under no illusions of the fact that I was, you know, that I was anywhere near first choice in the team. And because of that, because of that, I thought, well, this this might not last for very long. It might it might be, you know, I might play this series. Yeah, you know the the heading the innings was great, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but it could be a, that they go back to whatever their first choice might have been. If I if I have a couple of failures, then right, that will be that. And I and I was I was kind of happy. I was not happy with that, but I was kind of resigned to that fact, and I wasn't going to beat myself up about it because where I'd been, and um, you know where I'd been, and where I, where I where I thought I might end up, 
had, had been exceeded by being picked for England anyway. See what I mean? So I'd go, I basically just thought, so I'm going to enjoy this as much as I possibly can. I'm not going to get sort of bogged down in the, in the sort of being, you know, worrying about whether I'm going to get selected or not. I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm going to go out there and give everything as much of a crack as I possibly can. And that meant everything. On field, off field, the whole lot. And I did. And that's what I did. It caught up with me in the end, sort of around about... It caught up with me uh, sort of around about 2004. We had a, we won in the West Indies in 2004. Um, and I, you know, I contributed. I met, you know, averaged 50 in the series and got battered by, by Tino and, um, and Fidel on some, on some pretty interesting decks. But I made runs. Hadn't played particularly well, but made runs and contributed to us winning for the first time in 50 years or something. So something to be proud of. But I wasn't in great. I wasn't in great nick, and I wasn't in great shape by then. I was kind of the, the, the toll was starting to be taken of, of just how much fun I was having. So I picked up a bunch of injuries in the summer of two thousand and four. Had a rough old time of it against New Zealand. I'd never seen him get scoring runs against New Zealand. Was, you know, <laughs> I don't know what that was all about. But it was just always a shit team for me. Couldn't couldn't get myself going at all. And again, there was another interaction I remember with with the old man was. In a, I was in a hotel room in, at Trent Bridge and I called him up. I, I thought, well, I'll call him again. And I said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. I don't think I can do this anymore. And he put the phone down on me. <laughs> <laughs> he just went, donk. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And um, so, I, well, oh, okay, right. I'll stop feeling sorry for myself. And I, I, Me and Thorpe, we put 150 or something in a run chase in the last innings of that test match and we won the game. I got 60 on but anyway, even then, I was still, I was just struggling. I wasn't, I wasn't right. So, you know, I hadn't really learned a massive amount. I hadn't learned a huge amount from the first time. I guess that's what I'm saying. But so what, so, but what, I, but what I was able to do was I had, I had a technical proficiency that married up with the ability that I, that I had was able to make me successful. Now, I, I'm, I'm not, like I said to you before, I'm not big on numbers. But I do. But I had looked back because I was trying to. So I was trying to work out. You know, you sort of sit there and you're, you're just commentating with Sonny Gavaska and Peterson and goodness, you know, these these guys who have got incredible records in the game. And you, I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, you know, do I? How much? How much credibility do I have standing up to these to these guys or getting in, involved in arguments about various stuff? And so I just thought, you know, I, I need to, I need to kind of look into this because I knew that one heart, one part of my career was better than the other. So I looked into it. I, I averaged fifty at home between two thousand and one and two thousand and four, right? Fifty something, and forty one overall in in that period. So I'd twenty twenty five or something in the first first bit of my career prior to two thousand and one, and forty one batting at three for the next bit. And I and I kind I kind of I. I sort of pushed my chest out a little bit. I thought, oh, well, that's all right. You know, I didn't realise, I didn't, hadn't realised it was that good, you know. You know, there'll be, there'll be Australians watching this going, oh, fucking hell, 41, 41. Jesus, these pumps. You know what I mean? But I hadn't really, I didn't really, I hadn't realised that I'd kind of, you know, that I'd, I'd been as consistent mm. as that. Um, and so, you know, so, I, so I, to be honest with you, given the way that I was living my life and the way that everything else was going on, you know, what the old man did and the things that we changed back in 2001 lasted a very long time. I mean, had I, had I been, had I been a, a smarter guy, 
I think I'm reasonably smart now, but had I been a, re- a smarter guy when I was playing, it would have been, it would have paid much bigger dividends than that. But like, as I was kind of playing on it, every, every game felt like it or every series felt like, well, this, this might be the last time, mm. you know, how much, how much, how much longer can I get away with this? <laughs> yeah. um, and so, and that's, and that's, that's what I did, you know? And so again, you know, sort of regrets or whatever. I, I, I think I was, I, I should have been a better, better player than I was, or I should have been more productive than I was, but my life and the way that I was living it and, and uh, just kind of, kind of got in the way i was never i was never as focused on on it as i ought to have been mm. and and i freely admit that now if you'd have said that to me back then I'd have, I'd have told you to go and do one but i look back on it now and i think yeah especially when i, I spent a lot of spent a lot of time broadcasting now around around the current players and about the, and the way that they the way that they go about things and the way that they live their lives i mean it's completely different to um to how things were back then and uh, and they kind of you know they, they they work unbelievably hard and they are very focused and they are you know they might not always be great but who is but it's very different mm. now than it was then. It's interesting that you can still have imposter syndrome after playing seventy one test matches. Be like oh you know I wasn't, well, <laughs> wasn't I wasn't that good I could have been much better. Well I mean no listen I was I was as good as I was as good as I could have been yeah. given given everything else but it, it didn't see it never felt and and this is a, this is a massive failing on my part it never felt as though it was the most it, that it was a, that it was that serious you mm. know i never really treated it with the respect perhaps that it deserved and who knows if i had done i might have driven myself yeah. nuts and been worse have been worse but um i might have been but you know. the the way it, it it finishes up there's like a lot of most sporting careers don't get a, a big farewell and a you know a, a, a parade and all the rest of it. And there's there's sort of a metaphor for death, I suppose, in that it uh, it stops for well, you. Every time you get out, there is <laughs> every time every yeah. time you every time you're dismissed, it's mm. like a, it's like a little death, yeah. isn't it? Although uh, the French the, the French call a little yes. death something else. Not, not in <laughs> not in quite a satisfying <laughs> way. <laughs> Uh, the different le, le petit mot um, can be quite distinct, but the that when when a sporting career stops for one person, it keeps going for everybody else, and that's kind of you know that's how it was for you. You, you had an injury, you had a bungled operation, and and then it was just this sort of mid series overseas in South Africa. Oh, all right, you're off home. See you later. No fanfare, and that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I always remember Simon Jones coming down to see me off at the at the at the hotel. I'll never forget that. Jones is a great man. I mean, you know, I, I, we obviously had a, a similar thing happen with him yeah. at Brisbane, where we thought we might never see him again. And I think he remembered that, and he came and saw me off at the at the, at the not at the airport, but at the hotel. Mm. And that was, you know, that was it. I, I was done. And, and maybe I think I wonder if maybe in my in my mind I knew that. Mm. There was an Ashes series coming up, 2005. I didn't, you know, I had to have a, the operation didn't happen in the end until sort of the middle of February, or it was February the 13th, which was the day before Valentine's Day, and I didn't recover f- from it until late August. And even then, I had to have it done again. So I kind of, I, I maybe I knew when I left South Africa. I don't know. Maybe I kind of had an inkling that this was gonna, this was gonna take um, more than I had in me at the time to kind of to to, to come back from. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, so so then you watch you watch that series two thousand and five most of it as a, as a fan. I watched wasn't playing myself. It was my benefit year actually at the Oval, so I was kind of doing events and trying to make a few quid for the for retirement. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and, and I remember just, just watching the cricket and just being spellbound as everybody else was by this incredible series. Um, and then and then the sort of the realisation, the Trafalgar Square day was kind of like, oh, my God, Christ, I, 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 that should have been me. I should have been there, you know. Well, you foreshadowed um, it. You foreshadowed it in 2003. I'll, I'll, read a, <laughs> I'll read a quote to you from 2003 when you're kind of you yeah. know, in the middle of the team. We've sat down together and thought, imagine how big the bunch of players who win the Ashes will be. The country is so hungry for it. You wouldn't have to do anything for the rest of your life. It'll be just like the boys of 1966. <laughs> Is that what I said? You said that you thought. I mean, you essentially uh, foreshadowed what it would be like in 2005 for that group of players. Yeah. You know, the 1966 comparison is right there in, in the Trafalgar Square, open top bus, and, and the way that team's uh, deified. I mean, really, even even to this day, isn't it? If you're a member of the yeah. 05 squad, even a bit player, and you sort of, I mean, you know, this mirrors a, a part of the chat we had with Nass, I suppose, in a way that you and he were part of the teams that laid the foundation for that success in 2005. Yet you weren't able to be there now. Nass was fairly um, uh, fairly phlegmatic about the whole thing, saying that his career ended when it did and that was cool. But you being a fraction younger and you having been there just before, I mean, it, yeah. must, it must be tough knowing that you were kind of within touching distance of being part of that team, having been part of another type of team that's remembered in a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah. But again, and I can remember the exact moment that that dawned on me as well. I was, I was in a dressing room at Edgbaston playing or trying to play in a, in a four-day game um, up there when when that whole thing was happening. And I remember watching it on the TV and I had to get myself out of the room because I started to well up because that was what that was the moment that I, re- I, I realised, crap, you know, mm. missed out on on that. It's interesting that I'd said that before. I'm not, not as daft as I look, am I? <laughs> but there we go. There's the, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so it, it, but but during the during the series itself, it was kind of like it was just so gripping. It never really occurred to me to think about it from that point of view. But mm. when it was over, yeah. Uh, but you know, who knows? If I'd played, we probably would have lost. It would have gone differently. You might have won more convincingly, and and then it wouldn't have been as exciting, and wouldn't have been as memorable. So you know, that, well, that exactly. had to be a close that, result. That's that's your story, and I'm sticking to there it. Yeah. But you know, maybe <laughs> someone like Simon Jones, who did play in that series but never played again, um, you know, he's he's probably someone who who got burned by cricket as well. He's not someone who's getting paid big money to you know lead the commentary on different channels and and all the rest of it. He's kind of been is mm. is is outside nowhere near the limelight and all the rest of it. So you know, maybe yeah, being there true. doesn't that's necessarily true. change that. No, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think the, the one thing that the one thing that you can almost taste and remember are the, are the victories. You know, for, mm. I don't know. I wonder. I'd be interested to know if that's the same for the Australian teams that I played against. Because Christ, they won so often. It, it mm. must have been boring. But you know, <laughs> I can remember. I can sort of smell the uh, the uh, you know the, the, the celebrations in the West Indies after after winning down there. I can you know the, those those things jump out at you and stay with you for a long time. Mm. And if there was one, if there's one thing that I miss about playing, really, it's kind of that. Um, I don't really miss much else, but I, I do miss the miss the wins and the, those shared shared times that you have when the euphoria is just out of this world. So for 2005, well, if the guys can remember any of it. Sure, it was bloody good. <laughs> you, you said something at the start of the chat about um, about sort of not missing dressing rooms as such, which I suppose informs why you went 
to the broadcast side as opposed to the, the coaching side, which is often a decision mm. that players need to make when, when their playing career is finished, as yours did in, in 2009. But I, I love something you said on Twitter last week about your passion is for the game and not mm. having a dog in the fight helps you with that, not f- feeling – I mean, you're a former England player and no one's questioning your patriotism, but when you're working in cricket, your focus is on the game at large, capital G, uh, sort of yeah. as opposed to um, whether you know England have a good – Session or not, uh, your emotional tie-up now with cricket is about the love of the twenty-two yards in the middle. The great um, game of and cricket, and I think that's that's sort of yeah, well, yeah. But it's a, there's a nice way of sort of evaluating that, isn't it? That all that you went through as a player and, and all that you've seen as a broadcaster, you've still got that passion that you probably had as a little boy in that Surrey dressing room. Yeah, exactly that. And, and I think I think what I'm doing now allows me to to feel that way about it. One of the things I felt at the end at the end of my playing career was that I was just so I was so um, emotionally involved and caught up in um, who was winning and who was losing. You know, I was captain of Surrey. We were having a, a, a pretty shocking time towards the back end of the the first decade of the two thousand. Mm. And you just carry that with you. I'd carry that. That would hurt in ways that I that I didn't want to experience anymore. Um, and it was I was starting to hate the sport because of it because it just wasn't. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't enjoy feeling as, as sort of culpable or as emotionally tied up in, in in those wins and losses. It was my identity, I suppose. So Surrey County Cricket Club, and so I perhaps felt it more keenly than than I might have done if it was another if I was doing another job somewhere else. Mm. Um, and so, so part of part of the the way of the only way really of of, of being able to stay as in touch and in, and as in love with the game was by removing myself from the nuts and bolts of who's doing what, who's scoring runs, who's winning, who's losing, and being able to see it as a as a whole um, and uh, to enjoy it for what it is. To be able to to be able to enjoy um, the skill and the and the athleticism and stuff of, of this generation of players. To be able to you know to to be able to position. Test match cricket and T Twenty cricket and fifty over cricket in in their in their roles in the grand scheme of things for getting people to to love the sport, um, and you can't do that if you're playing. Or I don't think you can. Or I wouldn't have been able to put it that yeah. way. I can only speak for myself. Um, but as a broadcaster, you can do all of those things, and and you can cheerlead as well. I mean, but you're cheerleading for the sport. You're not cheerleading for a team. You're cheerleading for the game itself, um, and you know how great it is and how enjoyable it can be and how. Uh, how how much of a of a wonderful thing it is to be involved in at any level, whether you're playing, whether you're you know a supporter, a volunteer, whatever that might be, you know it's given me an incredible life, and 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 to be able to say to other people that it can do the same for you if you if you're open if you're open enough to it, that is a is a is a great gift, I think. Yeah, and this stood out to me last year when coming on your debate program that your interest. Uh, intricate interest, if you like, in, in the nuts and bolts of the workings of the game behind the scene and the, the, the strength of the administration and so on, that's not something you'd necessarily get from uh, a broadcaster who, and this is kind of that um, this cliche we almost referred to earlier, isn't it? The, the former player who talks about how, how they would have done it had they been playing then and doesn't have a broader frame of reference, but the very fact that you're called upon to, to host that debate show and mm. to talk about the game far more broadly it reflects your your interest in, in the health of it as you say not just being emotionally wrapped up in wins and losses yeah absolutely um and again without that without that sort of broader remit i wouldn't enjoy it so much anyway you know 
I, I tend to I tend to sort of like have try and try and stick my nose into all all parts, uh, perhaps not be as as informed about everything as you possibly can, but trying to know what's going on. You know, having a having a broad outlook in in in, in the game itself. Um, and and again, try try to try to bring people into it. The sport needs that. The sport doesn't need people carping and bitching and, and saying how much better they would have done it thirty years ago. Yeah, no sport needs that. No sport has that, I think, to the extent perhaps that cricket does at times. Um, and so, you know, the, the job is to look look forward a little bit, to to be impressed by and to um, and to and to marvel at what these guys can do now that they couldn't do before. I mean, I think that's a far more interesting frame of reference than talking about what they can't do now, in, in, as opposed to what they could do before. I mean, who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And uh, mate, I have an incredible amount of respect for the sort of the, the history of the game and the, and the feats and the and the numbers of the players gone by. Don't, don't get me wrong; I, I I I know all that. I used to know all that as a kid. I used to spend hours with bloody scorebooks and things and looking through. <laughs> I, I was a complete nuffy. That that got wiped out pretty quick. Don't know what that was. Probably being drinking age. I don't know. But anyway, I I did all that stuff. I, so I have an enormous, incredible amount of respect for, for the guys who have gone before. But they've gone. As I did, and as as the the next lot will, the game continues, doesn't it? Yeah, the um, the world doesn't stop. It, it's mm. interesting that you know you, you've you've always been pretty politically engaged and not shy about having an opinion politically. Whereas, like a lot of people in sports broadcasting, tend to just stay on the fence because they they don't want to say the wrong thing and alienate any part of their audience or, or whatever it might be. So you already had that that had that had been part of your makeup for a while, and then last year when the well, I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know if it had, you know, mm. I, t- I don't know if it had. I don't, I was, I was, sorry, no, I didn't okay. mean to cut you off, but I, I don't think prior to pr- probably prior to 2016, I don't think I'd ever really kind of been. Well, I certainly wasn't out in terms of sort of any any political leaning, and mm. I don't think I was ever really that bothered. But I kind of. It's, uh, it's a little bit like you know you you spy on injustice. It doesn't matter who you're working for, or or whether or not it might it might impact you negatively down the line. You just say what what you think is happening. That's all. Yeah. Um, and I, I would never. I would. I would absolutely. Um, I would shrivel at the idea that I was ever sort of pol- politically engaged before because I mm. wasn't. I just didn't care. I was like, like most most other sports people. No, no interest whatsoever. You might look at your your tax. <laughs> your tax bill at the end of the year and that might be the sum total of your interest yeah. in in terms of what who politically was making those calls yeah but something you know things have a lot of things have happened in the last four or five years and you whereby you just think well how the hell can you possibly mm. sit on the fence with 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 things like things like the things we've been witnessing in the last four or five years and that's you know sometimes i think to myself, for god's sake just leave it alone but <laughs> You know, hope I'll leave it. Maybe, maybe we should all leave it alone when things are things are less crappy. You know, yeah. <laughs> I guess that, <laughs> that'd be nice. That's probably what I'm thinking about. Really, is since 2016. You know, the last five years or so, um, I'm thinking about your online presence more than anything. And so, yeah, mm. but, you know, yeah, okay. that's that's probably the the starting point. Um, sure. But it was notable last year that when when the Black Lives Matter movement started. <clears throat> Becoming more of a thing in in Britain and more of a thing in cricket um, that, that you know you you had a prominent place uh, to a prominent part to play in that your mother was Jamaican um, you mm-hmm. and and that you know didn't necessarily feel like it had been a huge part of your story 
publicly before, but you were happy to step into that, um, you know, into into the the arena once that, yeah. once, once people needed to talk about that, um, or once once the pressure yeah. was on to talk about it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess it's kind of like well, I I, I could. I could sort of just just allow you know my, my life's pretty good. I, I don't I haven't really been adversely affected by by the fact that that I'm, I'm mixed race. Um, my my mum is an incredible human. You know, being being sort of a, a black Jamaican married to a, a white English boy back in the seventies was not straightforward. But she and my dad always kind of sort of were able to kind of take care of us from, you know, shield us from the worst of, of that when we were growing up. And so, you know, my, my, exp- my experience is, is genu- genuinely um, a positive one. I, I, I'm incredibly proud of my, my um, Jamaican heritage and it's never, it hasn't really caused me any problems, but I know that that is not the case for, for many other people. And so if, because, because I'm, able to sort of uh, either articulate or just because I have the platform from time to time of being um, on, the, on the TV and I'm asked about it, then I won't shy away from it. Um, you can't, I don't I think, one of the things that I find extraordinary actually is that, that people find it so difficult to kind of put themselves into other people's experiences and think that just because I haven't, uh, just because I haven't had this thing happen to me or just because I've never seen it, that it, it doesn't exist. Um, and it's bizarre. It seems incredible to me that, that people can have that, that 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 point of view, whereby if I haven't seen it, it hasn't happened, type thing. Um, or if I, you know, if I didn't know what I was looking for, it hasn't happened. It doesn't kind of, you know. And so, it's. I think it's important to kind of to be able to to listen um, to to people's experiences and perhaps put put two and two together. You're not always going to be presented with the the fate complete. Oh, here it is. I'm like, oh, I can see it now. Um, a certain amount of reading between the lines is necessary every once in a while. Yeah, sort of almost like acknowledging your privileged, dare I use that, yep. that loaded term, position in society, having been a former professional athlete and having that yep. that platform that you're perhaps less likely to um, experience the worst of it. And I, I think that was a theme of a, a lot of cricketers last year when the Black Lives Matter conversation was at its peak, if you like, and certainly the the, the vodcast which you're involved in uh, hosting uh, that Sky Cricket put out and the... I would call it activism that Sky Cricket did in, in a really positive mm. way uh, around that yeah. first test match at the HES Bowl. I mean, it was a, it was, you could have shouldered arms to that had you seen fit to do so, but there weren't many people shouldering arms. So I think most people were able to acknowledge that, yes, whilst they might sit in a slightly more privileged position, they, they weren't able to let this one go by. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I think the whole production was, would and sh- uh, was and, and should be very proud of what they did that day. And subsequently as well. You know, it's one of those things that people kind of, you, you can sense fatigue with people on, on these things. But I think it's incredibly important that, that we don't, you know. I, you know we're, I'm old enough to remember Rodney King and the riots in Los Angeles in the 90s and stuff. And the kind of, you know, there was a reaction then, but it disappears. And it happens again and there's a reaction and it disappears. Mm. You know, the, the final, the, the last straw for me perhaps on, on all of that was, a guy got killed in broad daylight in broad daylight with witnesses all over the place now if you if you're telling me that there isn't some kind of some kind of idea 
that I can behave with impunity with this human being because because he's black and I'm white, then then you're blind. You know, you, the fact that, that they felt that they were able to snuff this guy out in full view of everybody, in broad daylight, being videoed, et cetera, et cetera, knowing that they were probably going to get away with it is as big a, is as big a um, you know, as as big a banner as you can ever have, mm. and 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 so and therefore you know lots of people lots of people were unbelievably shocked, unbelievably sort of outraged, and quite right too. Um, and if it's made uh, you know various people uncomfortable, then so be it. It's not as uncomfortable as being strangled to death in broad daylight. So you just have to put up with mm. it. And and that you know what what this is showing you isn't like this was some new outrage it's the impunity that security forces and police forces have in just about every country um that's the way they're set up there is no accountability that's that's part of the deal for the way those forces work yeah but and and, and again you know it, it's less about the less about the sort of like the, the the police. It's just it's just about the complete and utter disregard for the right of that person to be treated normally. You know, you, people get apprehended every single day, every single day. Not like that, they don't. Not so that it ends it ends with them dying on the street in broad daylight in front of God knows how many witnesses and all of his mates. This wasn't some one on one down an alleyway. You know, that's a, just, I don't know, but I just think you have to stop and think about that for a little while and think what that, what that means, what that's telling you. You know, I went on a, I went on one of the sort of, it wasn't a march really, we sort of sat in a park, my, my hometown and listened to some incredibly eloquent and incredibly um, bright, young, black, Asian people from my hometown, peaceful Everybody socially distanced, everybody wearing masks. But it was great. It was a really like, – I'd never done a thing like that before, and I'm really proud that I did, or pleased that I did, not proud. And, you know, the, 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 younger, the younger generation seemed to be completely all over all of this sort of stuff and have, have, have realised or understood or just can't understand why things wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be different from the way they are now. And so, you know, who knows, 15 years' time, 20 years' time, we, we, we might have to talk about this less or not at all. Yeah, let's hope so. And I suppose between times, you don't just have the the microphone as a commentator and your social media um, platforms to talk. You've also got your art and, and your music, and mm. uh, you know, you're still creating. You've still got that that inspiration that's fueling uh, you making a lot of music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think we're about a month or so away from releasing another four tracks on an, on an EP with a view of putting out an album in the in November, October, November. So yeah, yeah, the writing is good. I mean, that, that's one of the incredible things about this, about being in lockdown and all the other kind of stuff. That, that, that there's not much else to do but sort of be creative. Obviously, look after the little ones and whatever. And when you get five minutes, disappear off to the shed and go and, and go and write. You know, read, write. It's all good. We might let you get back to doing uh, just that nice place to leave it. Uh, Mark Butcher, you've been just a fantastic guest. Uh, thanks for sharing so many of your experiences in a remarkable life in cricket and may they continue for many decades to come. Yeah, gents, thank you. Thanks very much.
I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. It's The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, thanks again to Mark Butcher for being so wonderfully generous uh, with his time uh, this morning. Um, just one of the most sound people in cricket, Jeff, uh, whether that's his judgment on air or the, the, the way that he articulates himself or the way that he's transitioned from being a fine batsman. I mean, mm. I think in some respects there we, we fell into the trap of almost underplaying what a fine player he was, but now uh, arguably an even finer broadcaster, one we're going to see for many years on our screens. I also liked your use of the word sound then as an adjective, which th- there was a real sort of British uh, trend of that for a while. Do they still do that? Do people still say, oh, yeah, sound, mate, sound, yeah. I, I, I must admit, it might just be, might be the case I've lived here too long that I started using their words. I got pulled up on this last week for, um, I think, uh, Mezzy Jez, one of our patrons. Mm. Uh, I used telly in the OBO and he, and he mm. wrote back saying, that means you're officially English now, not saying TV, you're saying telly. I must. Oh, I, I never, no, I never thought of it that you way. You use telly in Australia. Well, We've said telly you for do? years. Oh, I thought so. We put wires on the so end of well. things. What's on the telly? Yeah, chuck on the telly, mate. Come on, that's <laughs> fucking Australian as. All right. That was a bit New Zealand. So, yes. Yeah, but sound, you know, they, you'd be like, oh, you, you want a pint? You go sound, mate, sound. Yeah. We'll, we'll, I'll take it on notice. I'll find out. Mm. You tell me. Am I sounding too English at the moment? Probably no, not with this I don't uh, think it's South current. I, I reckon it was a previous British thing. I reckon it's like a 20 years ago sort of British word, you know? Uh, yeah, ask Felix duly, White. Duly he'd know. noted. Hmm. Okay, uh, to finish, Jeff, we have some housekeeping in the form of the Bannerman updates. Hmm. This is where we ask our listeners, if you're new to the show, if you've heard the Butch interview and you're sticking with us, you're with us for the first time, to identify innings where a team's been all out, mm-hmm. um, but there's been a player in the team make in excess of 67.35% of the runs, which was the, mm-hmm. the percentage of Charles Bannerman in the first test innings played back at the MCG in 1877. And uh, we had one in, Jeff, from our producer, Dave mm. Collins, DC, who wrote <laughs> us during the week to tell us about a double century at his old club. Yeah, well, this was one that he remembered from, you know, many moons ago um, for for whatever reason. Um, it stayed in his mind, which I suppose it would stay in your mind. And this is, this is in a two-innings match batting second. Um, so, you know, Mornington have made 319 and then chasing uh, in, in, a, in an all-out effort chasing that I I don't want to give this away but you know you have to at this point it falls just short uh this is P Bradley I don't know the first name of P Bradley but I'm just going off the scorecards here who made an even 200 runs the next best score was 29 the next best score after that was 16 there were half a dozen scores in double figures and P Bradley was I reckon the second last player to get out and they ended up making 310. So they fell 10 runs short okay. of the chase with one player having made 200 out of 310, which is, I think, just shy of Bannerman. I reckon that's about 65%. But it's worthy of a, of a mention in that this was in the second innings after P. Bradley had bowled 36 overs in the first innings and taken four <laughs> wickets. No one else bowled more than 12. So presumably a spinner came on and twirled through 36 overs while they made seven for 319 and then came out and peeled off an even 200 runs in the chase that fell short. Losing that game, you would feel a little justified in being shitty at your teammates that no one else did anything. (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> Pete Bradley's definitely carried carried the, the team on his back. DC, let us know what his first name is. Uh, and the second one here is uh, from Dan O'Connell. Not the Dan O'Connell pub uh, mm. cricket team that you played for with uh, distinction, Jeff, mm. but our patron, Daniel O'Connell, who let us know that on the weekend, Lockie Wade from St. Bernard's Cricket Club scored 84 out of their third 11s, 118, and innings that included two sixes and his highest score in a career that spanned over 100 matches. It's also worth noting that he batted at number 10 the week before. So I reel up yours to the skipper when he peeled off 80-odd. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, though, there was a twist. Um, uh, Dan wrote us a subsequent email after looking at the card in, in greater depth to, to realise they only lost nine wickets. The number oh. 11 stuck around for three balls to get some red ink <laughs> alongside Lockie Wade, who, who also was uh, unbeaten on 84. So that means that despite being 71.2%, a contender, a mm. qualifier, mm. it doesn't meet the bill because it wasn't all out. So yep. well played, Lockie. More of it. But... Um, uh, and thanks to Dan for bringing it to our attention and correcting the record. That was good of him, but not quite there. So the key point here is if you have Bannermans, and I'll tell you what, we've got an absolute beauty coming up on Storytime uh, this week from Thomas Melia, who is perhaps my favourite Bannerman ever, dare I say, apart from the original um, Charles himself, uh, will be uh, with us. Uh, we'll, I'll, I'll reveal all uh, on Saturday when we return for Storytime. So between times, get your nominations in from club cricket, park cricket, community cricket, whatever it is. We want to know any batter, 67 0.35% or better. We need to know about them mm-hmm. on the final word, Jeff. Yeah, that 71%, good effort. We will do all of that and more on the weekend show on the story time. Uh, other than that, we have our weekly show, which is like this one, where we talk about cricket or interview people um, and do things of that nature, which usually comes out on a Wednesday. Sometimes it moves around a bit, but, you know, you don't want to be too predictable in these times. So if you're new to the show and you've listened all the way to the end, well done. And if you'd like to uh, continue listening to it, that's when it will be out. Sometimes there are daily shows during tournaments and series when we're able to do those as well. If you want to support the show, patron.com slash the final word. The spelling of patron is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Who knows why? We don't. And aside from that, I will leave the rest of it to you. Yes, uh, thanks to Seba Super. Sebasuper.com.au forward slash the final word. If you want to learn more about sorting your super out, go and pay them a visit. Thank you to Wisdom Cricket Monthly for being fine supporters of us as well. And last but not least, to Mark Butcher, again, uh, outstanding guest. We really hope you enjoyed that interview. There'll be uh, more of those throughout the course of 2021, and there'll be so much more final word. Thank you to everyone watching on YouTube. I'm waving to you now. Jump on the page and subscribe there. We'll have those uh, T20 uh, videos coming up uh, later in the week when India host England. That's enough from us. This show is produced on the Bad Producer podcast label. Thank you to Dave Collins for editing us and we'll talk to you all again on the weekend. Bye for now. To end the show today, this is Mark Butcher with his song Country. Country.